Signs of Doom in Digital Transformation, What Finance Leaders Need to Know About Digital Transformation, and a mashup from our upcoming Digital Transformation Conference. Those are just a few of the things we're going to talk about here in episode number 131 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to episode number 131 of Transformation Ground Control. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of transformation. My name is Eric Kimberling, your host here today. I'm also the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. And joining me, as always, is my colleague, Kylie Kyler. I should know your name by now after, what, uh, <laughs> a couple of years of doing this? It's not Kylie. Uh, it is Kyler. Cheatham. I don't know where I got Kylie. Kyler Cheatham is our co-host. So Kyler, or not Kylie, thank you for being here today. Maybe we should just go with Kai. You know, that'd be really easy. So you can yeah. call me Kai if you want. <laughs> yeah, rough, rough start to the episode. So we'll see. It might be an interesting one. You might want to stick around just to see what else uh, happens here and what other disasters might uh, in, ensue in this in this episode. Um, but no, it, it'll be anything but a disaster. Although I will say we are going to cover disaster uh, partially in our in our opening segment here today. Our opening segment is going to start off with some questions from the audience that we've received over the last few days. Uh, we'll uh, Kyler will pull out her question jar where she accumulates or gathers all the questions that are coming in through social media for us. Uh, we'll cover the EU or European Year of Skills 2023. It's a new program. Um, based out of Europe, that's super interesting. Um, not only if you're in Europe, but um, just in general, it's interesting. And then we'll talk about signs of doom in digital transformation and how to fix it. So those are the couple of hot topics we'll cover in our opening segment. And then later in the show, we will have Nicole and Shannon from a company called System 1A on the show. They're going to talk about what finance leaders need to know about digital transformation. And then last but not least, we will we're going to play you a sort of a mashup of our past digital stratosphere conferences and we're going to play you little clips it's sort of a, a, a mashup of clips and different speakers and different topics uh, from past digital stratosphere conferences and the reason we want to share that with you is not only because it's interesting but also to give you a flavor of what you might expect at our upcoming digital stratosphere conference which is being held in denver the first week of october um, so if you're interested in joining us in Denver, Colorado, if you're interested in joining live, please uh, go to stratosphere2023.com to learn more about the event. Um, it's a great technology agnostic event. We'll talk more about it later in the show, um, but we'll give you a flavor of what sorts of topics uh, you might hear from different speakers in that uh, conference as well. So that all be, being said, that's what we're going to cover here today. But let's start with uh, some of the questions you've got for us here today, Kyler. Yeah, absolutely. Well, our question jar is fresh with new questions. If you do have questions, 
for Eric or that you want us to cover here on Transformation Ground Control, you can actually comment on any of Eric's social media. He's on pretty much every platform from TikTok to LinkedIn to YouTube with the hashtag AskEric, and we will pull your questions and ask them here live. He's never seen any of these questions, so it is definitely an authentic response. You can also, wherever you're joining right now, can pop the questions in the comments. Um, we aggregate all of those and bring them to future episodes. So with that, let's get into it here. Um, so this is an interesting question. This talks about customization versus kind of off-the-shelf products. So do you think ERP is better than a company-specific system or a system that a company has customized to their specific needs? Hashtag it depends. Uh, <laughs> let's get it out of the way uh, up front. No, it, it, it does depend. I mean, I know there's a lot of purists on both sides of this argument, and I'd say most people in the industry are probably pretty biased or, or, or purists about um, not doing customization um, because there there is so much there's so much good commercial off the shelf software available. It does beg the question of why would you customize if you don't need to? But the the big assumption there is that you don't need to, and that's oftentimes is not a true assumption because for some organizations or even some parts, you know, individual pockets within an organization, they might find that they do need to customize to to satisfy their their needs and requirements. And I think the way to think about it, you know, the way I, I always frame this discussion is there's certain parts of your business that might be more the vanilla or commodity based sorts of business processes where, yes, you probably want to use and it's pretty safe to assume that you can find off the shelf software to meet those needs. But where the tricky part comes in and the, the dilemma comes in is when you find those parts of your business that are unique competitive differentiators and or it's just something that's unique in your industry, or you've got this distinct competitive advantage that you do things differently intentionally because it's allowing you to outperform your peers. Then the question there becomes, well, is there realistic, is there realistically going to be off the shelf software that can handle those needs? And for a lot of organizations, they get at best a watered down version of what it is they're trying to, to do with their business. So then the dilemma becomes, well, do we take on that risk and cost of customizing software, which is risky? There is risk associated with it. There is cost associated with it. It's going to take you longer to deploy that technology if you customize it. But the question becomes is, does it deliver enough business value to justify that risk? And if it's a source of competitive advantage, chances are pretty high that you're going to have a pretty compelling ROI um, to do that sort of customization. So I don't want to say I'm an advocate of customization, but I am an advocate of keeping your mind open to customization because it might be that your organization needs to either customize or go find a third-party bolt-on system to satisfy what other deficiency you might have in your core technologies that you're deploying. Yeah, and invest in kind of engaging an expert, an independent expert on those customizations because a lot of times you don't know what you don't know, especially when you have a vendor pushing an agenda that's specific to them as opposed to what's specific to the business. So that's always a great way to kind of say, do we actually need this customization or should we kind of align our processes to meet where the technology can compromise? So definitely a great answer there. Yeah, that's a great point too that is worth noting because a lot of times what happens is you get a lot of bias inputs into your planning and decision-making process. So during the sales cycle, for example, when you're going to buy the technology, you're going to hear a lot of bias for why off the shelf is the way to go and how their software can do everything off the shelf. 
And that's what they're selling you is this vision of off-the-shelf software. So then you end up with an unrealistic expectation, assuming that the off-the-shelf software is going to be able to do everything you need it to do. And reality is probably not going to do everything you need it to do. But then during implementation, there's another kind of bias that comes in because now you're dealing with not a sales rep who's selling software. Now you're dealing with the implementation consultants who make more money if you do customize. So they might actually kind of flip that bias and now start to be okay with you customizing or maybe even encourage you to customize because they'll make more money when you extend the project and you spend more money on their services. So there's always a bias and oftentimes it's a conflicting or a competing bias, but um, there's there's biases like that you that a technology agnostic advisor like like third stage can can help with. Oh yeah. And I mean you could be the most savvy, technical savvy, people savvy client. And those agendas are sneaky, especially if you don't go through that on a day-to-day process. So that's really what's nice with having that independent advisor or coach there through that to really advocate for you. Because like, again, you don't know what you don't know. And that's really complex, especially when you're shifting partners where, wait, I had out of the box was good, but now I'm supposed to customize everything. Like this is confusing. So it's very complex to go to go through all of those processes. So really great question. Um, and I encourage you all to answer the question in the comments too about customization versus off the shelf um, software, just because we do have an audience that is so engaged and well-versed that even reading the comments is like taking a masterclass in itself on digital transformation. Right. Okay, great. So this is a really good question. I was actually hoping we would get to this question because I don't know what you're going to say. And sometimes, you know, us working together so long, I can predict what you're going to say. So I don't know what I'm going to say either. (laughs) You really don't. ERP data, while voluminous, is notoriously dirty data. Do you think there's a potential to use AI to clean up the data before you feed it into new systems using predictive AI models? Hmm. I thought it was going to be an insult, you know, accusing me of having oh, no. dirty data or something, but um, <laughs> no, um, that's not where you're going with it. Um, yeah, I think it, I haven't seen it yet um, myself firsthand, but I believe and I, I understand that AI is starting to be used in data migration and data cleansing in particular. Um, you know, if you think about some of the, some of the, um, redundant manual work that goes into data migration. Oftentimes, if you think about like, first of all, if we back up just to maybe set the framework or the groundwork for what, what it means to have dirty data. You know, if you, if you look at, um, for example, uh, customer master information, you've got, um, you've got a, a customer named Kyler Cheatham and Kyler Cheatham lives in Grand Junction, Colorado. You've got her address, you've got her, you know, transactional history of what she's purchased from you, all that stuff. Uh, but then uh, I come in and I say, I think her name's Kylie Cheatham. So I put in Kylie Cheatham and instead of Kyler Cheatham, because I tend to forget your name at times. This was your plan the whole time, wasn't it? To go through this <laughs> I'm using my disadvantage to make it an advantage and helping me answer a question. Now. See, I, I did that totally intentionally. Um, so now now I've got two sets of data that is really the same customer. It's Kyle, Kylie is actually Kyler Cheatham. And now we've got to figure out how to merge that. Now that that may not be the best example, actually, because um, AI. I don't. I don't know if AI could pick up on that. They probably could actually, because it would have the same address, but a misspelling of the first name. And so AI would be able to pick that up and see that there's a duplicate, two customers. And now, now you can't report on that customer accurately. You can't have clear visibility into what that customer does or did because now you've got Kylie and Kyler as two master records. They're splitting the the data or splitting the uh, back the transactional data that goes with that. 
So AI would be able to clean that up. I mean, so that's just one micro example of how data can become dirty. Um, every day an organization has humans that are touching data and doing transactions and making adjustments and things like that. And they make mistakes and no one is necessarily there in a lot of organizations to go back and catch that and fix it and clean it up later. So AI is perfect for that because it's a very manual process of going through, looking at all the duplicates or looking for the duplicate uh, master records or um, master records that just aren't consistent, that sort of thing. So AI is perfect for that because it is such a routine or a, such a mundane task that is perfect for AI. So it's not widespread yet, but it, it's starting to be used for data migration. I think in the future, it, it, I think it'll be a very powerful, powerful tool for that. Yeah, definitely an, a niche opportunity. And since we're talking about my name, interesting fun fact about Kyler slash Kylie is I actually was born with a hyphenated last name. Um, that Cheatham is my married name. Um, and because of that, because of the government's quote unquote dirty data here in the state of Colorado and the United States, I've been summoned for jury duty under different last names that are technically within my name, but not my full name over 15 times. Um, so oh, it's one of those things where, <laughs> where you actually can have um, dirty data within a system and AI would be an awesome opportunity to kind of match secondary data points, whether it's name and address, age, those types of last known location, job function, those types of different things. So just fun fact, since we are focusing on a case study of my name during this episode. And anything to get out of jury duty, I'm all for. So if AI is going to help you, even though it's a responsibility we have in the United States to to serve on a jury if we get called for it, um, which by the way, I just called, got called for my very first jury duty this year. So um, I feel for you, not 15 times. I can't imagine, I was, I've, I'm was. i already dreading having to do it, um, but I can't imagine getting you know, summoned 15 times. So hopefully AI will fix that for you in the near future. I agree, yes. And, and now I have one gorgeous last name due to my gorgeous husband. So, you know, <laughs> all of those there different things, but I know, right? <laughs> Problem solved. I know, problem solved. But thinking, speaking of problems, I know we have some rather meaty hot topics. So I know we want to shift gears and kind of get into um, some other public policy, but also some kind of doomsday red flags for transformations. Yes, absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about signs of doom in, digi signs of doom in digital transformation as well as signs of doom in my inability to talk today. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be a rough one. I'll try to clean it up before before our next segment. Talk about signs of doom and digital transformation, how to fix it. We'll also talk about the European years of the European year of skills in 2023. Um, so be sure to stick around. And then later in the show, we will have um, Shannon and Nicole from a company called System 1A on the show to talk about what finance leaders need to know about digital transformation. And then later, after Nicole and Shannon are on the show, we will have a mashup of some of our past digital stratosphere conferences, as well as a discussion about our upcoming digital stratosphere conference, which is the first week of October in Denver, Colorado, in the United States. Um, you can go to stratosphere2023.com to learn more about that event, but we're going to talk more about that later in the show. So stick around. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. 
With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 131. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, Pandora, iHeartRadio, et cetera. So wherever you listen to podcasts or watch podcasts, you can find us there. So be sure to check us out. New episodes every Wednesday. So uh, you've got some hot topics for us today here, Kyler. What, what's in store here? Yeah. So first I want to talk about this really interesting program that's called the European Year of Skills. And I actually found this through an article in Technology Magazine that talked about the importance of upskilling in a digital transformation to create sustainable growth and to maximize those efficiencies through the overall skill set of your workers. And they referenced this program. So I kind of want to give you a, just a little bit of background of like, what is this? So basically the European Year of Skills, the goal is to help companies in specific or specifically small to medium sized companies address the shortage of technical skills in the EU. So really what it wants to do is promote the mindset of reskilling and upskilling to help people get the right skills for these quality jobs. Uh, and let me just give you some numbers of how they got to this. Uh, so they're, they said um, in the the technology article on Technology Magazine, that over 80% of European entities or European businesses are having trouble finding quality employees without having to spend a bunch of money in upskilling or training new employees around new, new systems. So really what they're gonna do to make this happen is the European Parliament and then the EU member states social partners, employment services, chambers of commerce in each member area will invest in industry education, training to workers and companies to address this problem. And the goal here is that 77% of EMU, uh, oh no, I'm sorry, 20 million will actually go through this program by 2030. And then their goal is 60% of adults should participate in training by year 2030 to ensure that there is um, this skills gap is being addressed by a government government entity. Um, and then the timeline of what this looks like is it actually started in September of 2022, uh, where the European Union president said that this was something that was a huge problem via their studies and insight work. And they um, adopted the proposal in February 2023, and they're actually launching it this month. So it's kind of an exciting way to look at any addressing any skills gap, but with the support of a government entity. So it, it is a stark difference to kind of what we see here in the United States, which our kind of cultural um, navigation is how do we regulate technology companies and ensure that we understand the importance of data security or privacy 
And so we've, we've taken kind of a different turn as opposed to kind of embracing the workforce. So I wondered if you could kind of give us an idea of what your feedback would be, maybe in a comparison between the United States and the European Union's approach to upskilling um, workers, because we really only see that in more privatized companies right now. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, not to get into my too far into my personal political preferences, but generally speaking, I'm, I haven't been, I'm not a fan of government intervention in much, you know, I, I'm, I would consider myself somewhat of a libertarian as far as just minimize, minimizing government's role in society. But I do think that when it comes to this stuff we're talking about, government can and should play a really active role in shaping the workforce of the future. Because um, one, as you were describing this whole backdrop, uh, Kyler, one thing that I came to mind was when uh, Walker Reynolds was on the show several months ago, maybe mm -hmm. sometime oh, yeah. last year. He's, he's an industry 4.0 kind of guy. And we, we were talking about AI at some point in the conversation. And he, he made the comment or he referenced a study. I don't know if it was a study or his own assumption, but he, he made the comment that his prediction for the future or his, his, uh, the study predicted in the future that the average worker in the workforce is going to have a much is going to have to have a much higher IQ and a much higher uh, skill set to be able to survive in the economy going forward, particularly because of AI. And so it's basically the whole premise of the thread of the conversation, if I remember correctly, was that the workforces in the, of the future need to be a lot smarter because of AI and AI is transforming workforces a lot quicker than any other technology we've seen in the past. So I think if you look at that, I don't know that the private sector is going to be able to respond fast enough to build an entire workforce that's going to be required in the future. And so I think it totally makes sense that the EU would do this or that European countries would invest in um, upskilling their people to really get ahead of that. And also just to, because you, you have to look at the potential displacement too. you know, what happens if X percent of society now is jobless because they just don't have the right skills um, to be able to, to work in the future and, and, you know, technology is accelerating, the pace of change is accelerating over time. And I'm always a little bit leery whenever someone, someone or a group of people freak out about a type of technology, assuming it's going to be a terrible mass thing. But I think it is safe to say that there are definite massive shifts in skills that we're going to need to be successful in the future. So I think it, it totally makes sense that the government would get ahead of it. My only question is how effective and efficient can a government be at doing that? Uh, but I think that's what, I mean, that's what they're here for is to do things like this. So um, that's the sort of my knee-jerk reaction to it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's um, really on the the entity or the organization to take the responsibility of, of leveraging these programs. And um, so hopefully, you know, it's something that they can offer. I remember when I worked for the government for a very short stint of time early in my career, it's how I learned all of my Excel skills because I took all of their Microsoft classes because they were all free. And it was something that, um, you know, a privatized business had never offered me. Uh, so there is opportunity, you know, to kind of learn new things, even if like someone like me, who's not a huge technical worker can still learn, you know, a database skills set um, and be able to leverage that within their day to day through efficiency. So. I think it's it's great to see just that support and that overall funding from not only the governor, uh, the government, but also partners um, when it comes to wanting to create a more um, intellectual and technical savvy workforce. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about um, the doom and gloom. Um, 
So according to Forbes, and this is actually a newer study, so this is a bigger statistic than we actually um, have said in the past, the risk of failure in digital transformation is 84%, which is staggering, right? Um, and it's just, it's incredible. And instead of cost savings and lower stress, they often serve up budget overruns, extended timelines, exhausted teams, and frustrated executives that kind of throw up their hands and walk away um, saying this is taking too much time as I'm you know, preaching to the choir here. So a lot of these roots of failure come from a variety of things that you talk about specifically, but there's um, actually one initiative in here that I kind of want to dig into that I haven't heard you or our team talk about a lot, but I have heard it mentioned specifically recently. Uh, so I want to go over kind of the the critical failure points that we we talk a lot about, and then dig into one specifically. So change management. So and again, this is another study from Forbes. It's a recent study. Approximately seventy five percent of change efforts flop, which I'm again shocked at. Um, so we talk about a lot about change management. And we can definitely go back to that one too. Um, we talk about internal teams should own their transformation. Uh, and they um, they give a case study here that I just want to touch on real quick. Obviously, I'm excited about this article. Um, but Miller Coors really learned this the hard way in 2013 after spending $100 million on a failed ERP implementation without internal expertise or advisors to steer the transformation or guide their implementation partners. Can you imagine? So they, they completely outsourced it lost a hundred million dollars because they had no internal team and no independent and technology agnostic advisors to guide their partners so their partners ran away with their own agendas and their implementation failed fascinating i think that one's in our uh, top 10 list of digital transformation failures of all time i didn't know the price tag was that high and i don't think it was that high at the time we did that ranking um, but we have a YouTube video and a blog about that if you want to learn more about the Miller Coors debacle or other other doom and gloom situations too. And maybe a refresh would be cool too. Um, do yeah. a little duet with that video too, maybe on TikTok or something to kind of bring us up to speed of what's happening now. Because to your point, those failures don't just stop when you decide, or the you know the cost of failure doesn't just stop when you decide to forego the implementation. They continue to increase or compact. Um, so an, another one of these red flags is uh, a combined or collaborative goal. So what are you trying to achieve? What's the vision of the digital transformation if there's none of that? Um, or, you know, are you trying to reduce cost of goods? Are you trying to, you know, reduce production rate and create efficiencies? You know, what is the business case around that? Um, and then understanding, I call it the third stage, we call it the third stage here, but right here they call it kind of the maintenance post-launch phase. What does that look like? Um, and then this one's another interesting one, and I promise I'll get to my point and go through what the one I want to ask you about. But almost 77% of organizations adjust their digital transformation with major or noticeable modifications throughout the process. And those adjustments need to have some sort of agile way and project manager that guides them uh, through that initiative. So you have to be aware of the indecision. They say that's really the, the doom part. There's no right or wrong decisions. There's only learning, but you have to be aligned of where that goes. So that leads me to the um, question doom, I guess, um, tactic that I really wanted to dig into you. 
Any long-term transformation program needs to indicate the oncoming shift by creating an internal transformation management office. Now this office, according to this study, um, monitors and escalates any issues, pushes the thinking, solves any problems, and motivates the team. It also handles key strategic service areas, reporting up to executive leadership, the board of directors. It focuses on organizational change management and communications, enterprise strategy alignment, and conflict resolution, and actually is the venture capital arm by shifting funding as needed. So we've talked about a core team, but this seems like kind of like a next level transformation core team. What's your reaction to this overall strategic approach? I love it. I mean, I think it's um, it's a great idea. I, um, I, I mean, I like the idea of, first of all, having a centralized internal team that um, is focused on, on this task at hand. Um, going back to your Miller Coors um, example of gloom and doom, um, you mentioned that they had outside parties that sort of ran this as an outsource implementation model. What you're talking about sort of spit, flips that around and says, do the opposite of that, which makes total sense. And it, it addresses that really important dynamic that doesn't just happen in, in a $100 million failure like was the case at Miller Coors, but it, it every organization that outsources or, or just assumes their system integrator or software vendor is going to handle the whole project for them. I mean, every situation that I've seen like that has failed. Um, I just have never seen a, a client succeed in that model. Um, maybe I will someday, you know, maybe the odds are not 0% chance of like of success, but it, it's somewhere close to zero um, just based on my experience. So I think it's a great idea. I think you need to have that, that sort of uh, centralized model. And I think you have to like, you know, I think we as professionals have to get it out of our heads that, agile is good and, you know, everything can be sort of unplanned and we can just go start building stuff and let the system integrator run wild with testing out new concepts. I mean, you, you sort of need that command and control model to some degree. I mean, not, you know, within reason, of course, um, you need that internal accountability, the internal governance, the internal controls, the accountability to the board for funding and results and all that stuff. So I think it's, it's a good thing. I think it ultimately, those parameters and guardrails are what can help keep a digital transformation on track, especially the more, the more complex ones. Absolutely. Well, very interesting um, doom and gloom article. Um, but most importantly, these failures are to be learned from, right? And looking at thought leadership like this and taking those strategies, internalizing them, understanding them, awareness is really the first step to changing um, that process. So I'd love to hear from the audience. Just want to turn to um, our great audience here. What is your top doomsday failure point for digital transformation? We can aggregate those into a list um, and put them on a blog or address them in a, a next episode to kind of help the movement here of creating that 84%. Can you believe that, Eric? That is just That's staggering. Insane. Yeah, I keep waiting for the day so, when, when the studies come out that show that failure rates are coming down. Um, I know I'm, that is not the case. And it it, it really of, is it. It really isn't. So um, yeah. let's buck the trend here, people. Let's um, create a list full of uh, experience, transparency, independence, technology agnosticism, um, and see if we can at least start to the spark of success. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you wonder what, 
what goes through organizations' heads sometimes when they, because most organizations know that failure rates are high um, and they know that their odds of success are lower than they're probably comfortable with, but yet they still do it. And yet they still make a lot of the same mistakes that companies have been making for decades now. So it's, it's fascinating to me that that organizational groundhog day sort of uh, dynamic is, is at play here. So yeah, we'll try to buck the trend and uh, you're doing the right thing by listening to this podcast because our intent on this podcast is to help you take away some best practices and lessons to, to be more successful in your digital transformation. So um, we're going to continue that theme of trying to help you be more successful in your transformation by bringing on our next guest uh, after we take a quick break. We're going to have Nicole and Shannon from System 1A, a company based out of South Africa, um, but they sell their software uh, to organizations throughout the world. And they're going to be on the show talking about uh, the topic of what finance leaders need to know about digital transformation. So whether you're in a finance team or you're a CFO or a VP of finance, or you're a stakeholder who uh, is engaging with the finance group as part of a change initiative, you'll want to stick around for this discussion because we're going to talk about what those finance leaders need to know about digital transformation, what some of the common misconceptions are, and uh, some of the common pitfalls to overcome um, as part of a transformation. So we'll have uh, Nicole and Shannon on the show as soon as we take a quick break. And then later, after we're through that discussion with Shannon and Nicole, we'll do our mashup of our recent or, or past digital stratosphere uh, conferences that we've hosted over the years. And uh, that is a way to kind of pique your interest or to give you a preview of what to expect in our upcoming Digital Stratosphere Conference in 2023, which is going to be the first week of October in uh, Denver, Colorado. You can join us live and in person uh, the first week of October, Denver, Colorado. Go to stratosphere2023.com if you want to learn more about that uh, in the meantime. But stick around. We'll be right back with Shannon and Nicole from System 1A. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Could you whisper in my ear? Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 131. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, where we stream every Wednesday. And you can also find the audio-only versions on audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to subscribe and check us out if you haven't already. Um, I'm excited for our next guest, first-time guest on Transformation Ground Control. Uh, it is uh, Shannon and Nicole from a company called System 1A based out of Johannesburg, South Africa, but they have clients throughout the world and they sell their software to clients throughout the world. And they're on the show here today to talk about what finance leaders need to know about digital transformation. And the reason I'm so excited for this uh, discussion is because a lot of times organizations go into their digital transformations thinking that one single technology, such as an ERP system, is going to be able to to address all of their needs. 
And what we're going to dive into here today is finance and accounting groups in particular. What are some of the challenges they face in digital transformation? And what are some of the tips and, and tricks and best practices we can share uh, and discuss to help those departments and those organizations through their transformations? Though, so with all that being said, Shannon and Nicole, welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for having us on your podcast. We're very excited to be here with you today. My name is Nicole and I'm from System 1A. I'm the Director of International Sales. My background is actually psychology and psychometry. And I've always just been very interested in understanding why people behave the way they do. And more specifically in, you know, in financial departments why leaders often make the decisions they do. So that's sort of how I got into the tech space. And I'm now gonna let my colleague Shannon introduce herself and tell us a little bit more about System 1A. Awesome. Well, uh, great to see you, Eric, um, and thanks so much for the opportunity. Um, so my name is Shannon. I am a actuary by profession with a background in complex data analytics and product research and development. So at System 1A, I head up our product division. So a very exciting work, just get to work with a bunch of very clever, very creative people, building new products and building new partnerships. And yes, it's um, very exciting to be here. So I guess that's, uh, that's enough about myself. Um, maybe to just give a little bit of background into System 1A. So System 1A, we've been around for just over 10 years. Um, I guess to just describe System 1A in a single descriptor, you could say we are a management and digital transformation platform for businesses, accounts receivable and accounts payable processes. So uh, what that essentially means in plain English is that we're a platform that helps businesses um, conduct their collections processes as well as their um, payment uh, approval and settlement processes more efficiently and more effectively. Uh, in terms of how that all works, so the platform connects that or integrates directly with the ERP, so with the business's ERP, and uses the ERP's information essentially as a base. And then extracts that information, converts it into a universal format, such that it's in the format that's easy for all the teams to use, and that's also um, easy to understand and interpret. That you're kind of left with a platform that uh, all uh, stakeholders involved, whether it's your sales teams, your collections guys, your payments uh, people, they all have access to the information on a centralized platform through centralized dashboarding uh, with a host of comprehensive tools to make the, those functions um, a lot easier. Um, whether it's in terms of communication, reporting and statistics, um, automation of certain manual processes. Really what it's all about is essentially zoning in on one specific or I suppose two specific business operations very in very much detail and really catering to all um, the specifics of that operation um, and all the nuances and uh, differences that might be in that operation. We are sometimes where there's maybe gaps traditionally left uh, by traditional ERP systems uh, due to the fact that they're catering to all operations um, together. Interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's, uh, it's really kind of segues into the topic we want to cover here today, which is, and you sort of hit on this, Shannon, in your description of what System 1A does, 
And that is sort of how do we how do we as finance departments, how do we manage an ERP project and or a digital transformation? And how do we leverage ERP technology without relying on it or being dependent on it to be the sole answer to what we need uh, to help mm. us through you know, our financial needs within a, an ERP project? So sort of leading into that, you know, my first question related to that is what are, you know, when we look at ERP systems, what are some of those deficiencies that ERP systems commonly have that creates problems and, or opportunities, depending on how you look at it, but creates problems mm -hmm. or opportunities for a finance and accounting group? You know, what are some of those deficiencies that you commonly see with ERP systems that you're trying to fill with, with your product? Uh, yeah, so it's an interesting question, and I think it is important to say upfront, uh, ERPs are a fantastic tool in the sense that it centralizes all your different business operations um, under one platform or under one system. Um, within saying that, and I guess it's uh, in the name itself, it being an enterprise system, um, that it's all-encompassing and that it touches on all the different business operations, you know, there is often the trade-off uh, between that, between, you know, being a system that is something to everybody uh, versus being a platform that's more specialized and caters for the details of that specific operation. And I think you're always going to see that trade-off, uh, no matter what type of system um, you're looking at over there. Um, so some of the limitations, I guess, that we've come across just in terms of our own research, as well as um, uh, from uh, feedback from our customers that we work with, um, there would be like limitations in terms of things like information access. So often how ERPs are structured is with uh, licensing restrictions. So people with certain uh, permissions have access to that information whereas those who don't have to rely on those people. And that can create like um, sort of bottlenecks over there, um, I guess, inefficiencies as well. Um, but yeah, when it comes to information access, um, it's not only limited to um, it's in the literal sense. It, it can even just relate to something as simple as information navigation, you know, finding uh, the document or the piece of information that you need on time. Um, and that just comes down to the fact that those navigation journeys in the ERP they're designed at an enterprise level um, and not taking necessarily into account what would be most intuitive or what would make the most sense for a specific uh, business operation. So um, there are just like certain nuances there that might not be taken into account. Um, there can also uh, be just with regards to limitations, um, limitations with access to um, reporting and statistics. So for each business operation, um, the ERP will have certain uh, built-in reports. Um, but the thing is, because it's obviously catering to everything at once, it might not necessarily go into the necessary detail or span the comprehensive uh, range of information that you'd ideally want it to do, uh, which means there can essentially be gaps in um, certain insights and stuff like that. Um, now, it's obviously not impossible to create uh, whatever report you would like from the ERP. Um, as we all know, an ERP, you know, it's essentially a database of all your um, financial uh, information. Uh, it just comes down to the fact that often these ERPs can be a bit inflexible to work with unless you've got that very specialized expertise in how that specific system works. Um, which often means that if you want an additional report on that um, operation, either have to rely on somebody external or you kind of just have to uh, go without. 
Um, probably also before we, I guess, move on, just one main other area is just in terms of uh, manual processing. So uh, the ERP is very good at dealing with things that are generated inside the ERP. So if you're generating something like an invoice, credit notes, et cetera, et cetera, um, obviously that's very automated and works very well. Uh, there can be significant uh, manual processing when it comes to processing information that's generated outside the ERP. So that could be documents that you're receiving, let's say, from your suppliers. Often you have to manually enter those type of things in one at a time, looking at a piece of paper. So obviously, you know, it can take a lot of time in that way. Or even when it comes to, you know, uh, document chain linking. So uh, con uh, consolidating documents generated inside the ERP with those generated outside, um, like an invoice uh, that's generated in with a proof of delivery, let's say, that's generated outside. Um, Often there's a lot of manual processes required um, to do that. So it can take a lot of time and obviously put strain on your team's resources. Right. So, so you, you're saying, it sounds like you're saying that the functionality of ERP systems is focused on enterprise-wide integrated end-to-end -end processes, which is a strength of ERP technology in general. But when it comes to going deep within the specific needs of a finance or an accounting professional, that's where sometimes you're, you're lacking in terms of the ability to access information or the ability to have an efficient workflow. Is that sort of a summary of what you're saying? Uh, yes, no, exactly. I think also just um, with any with anything, the more deep you go into, I think, any problem, the more problems you see. Right. So, um, you know, if you're, you're looking at it from a global level, it might look like things all operate uh, perfectly and that's essentially all you'd need. But, you know, when you start to, I guess, peel the layers deeper into that, um, obviously other things do arise. Right, right. Now, when you are working with CFOs and finance leaders within an organization or just any executive within an organization, do the finance departments and the leaders within the organizations, do they, do they understand these nuances and deficiencies of ERP systems or do they typically think that the ERP system is going to solve all of these problems that you just described, Shannon? You know, Eric, if I can answer that, it's actually a great question. And when I started working at System 1A, I think almost 10 years ago, it was a huge hurdle that we had to overcome. And, um, you know, financial departments are so structured and you obviously you've got your, your, your boss at the top or your leaders, your decision makers at the top and you've got your managers. And then you've got your employees doing the actual ground work. And when we started presenting to companies, we thought that our presentation needed to be directly given to, you know, to your decision makers, to your leaders at the top. And so we would go in and we'd do our whole presentation and then they'd turn around at the end of the presentation and they'd say to us, quite confidently actually, they'd say, you know, ERP already does this. And like, look at Shannon or, you know, whoever I was with and I was thinking, what version of the ERP are they using? You know, maybe I haven't seen it or whatever. <laughs> anyway, with respect to the, you know, to the decision makers, to the leaders, they've been sold the ERP with the belief and the trust that this ERP has like total capability, that this ERP is all encompassing, that it's able to do absolutely anything. And of course, they've spent money, so they need just, you know, it needs to all be justified. But we were lucky because what we quickly realized is if we had the employees who are doing the actual work, 
in the presentation with their boss or with their decision maker, the employees would quickly see the value of our system. They quickly understood how it would make processes far more efficient and effective. So what we did, we decided to always you know, include them, include employees and include sort of all levels of staff in the, in the presentation. And actually we realized that these teams would get very excited when they could see what System 1A is capable of doing. So, so I think that the, you know, the, the leaders and the decision makers always are aware of these shortcomings, these deficiencies. Sadly, I don't think so. So they think these leaders, it sounds like what you're saying, these leaders think that an ERP system will solve the problems potentially. Yeah. But then when you show the capabilities of a product like yours with System 1A, it, it sort of exposes the additional advantages that might be missing from an ERP yeah. system. Is that okay? Especially like to the people who are doing the work. Yeah, the frontline people that actually understand exactly. the workflows and the inefficiencies yeah. and all that stuff. It's quite funny. It actually reminds me um, like my time when I used to work in insurance as an analyst. Um, obviously, you're working more with, um, you know, the in-depth, um, you're more hands-on with the data, I should say. And there were many times when you would speak, um, you know, with uh, Exco or management, and, you know, they might look back at you and say, well, aren't these processes already automated? It was always my favorite, like, aren't these processes, don't we really do that? Um, and I, yeah, I think it's like they see that stuff getting done some way or another, but they're not um, necessarily always aware of what actually happens to get there, get there, and if that was actually the ideal way to go about it for um, results in the future. We're here talking about what finance leaders need to know about digital transformation, and with Shannon and Nicole from System One A. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 131. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday streaming to YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as on audio podcast platforms throughout the world every Wednesday. Check us out at Transformation Ground Control. You can also go to transformationgroundcontrol.com uh, to find past episodes as well. So be sure to check us out there. So we're here in a conversation with Shannon and Nicole from System 1A talking about what finance leaders need to know about digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. Here's a really interesting audience question. I want to shift gears. I know I said I'd get through my questions first and you guys were prepared with my questions, but it's no fun if I don't throw a curveball early on in the, in the conversation here and, uh, and throw in a, a different question. 
But this is a this is directly related to what Nicole and Shannon, what you were just saying. So I kind of want to come to this question. This is from Kyler on LinkedIn, and she says, "If you are a CFO or a financial department head, what are some key questions or considerations you should ask the vendor during the selection process?" And maybe. You know, I, I guess you could answer this however you want, whether it's about ERP systems in general or whether it's, you know, sort of a, a, a best of breed or a bolt on solution like System 1A. What are some of those things that you could ask to really drill into understanding whether or not your chosen technology or the a technology you're considering actually addresses some of these needs that you both have described so far? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, look, I think when it comes to the selection process, you have your CFOs and you have your leadership who um, will be concerned with certain factors. And, you know, you've got your teams or your workers who would um, obviously be using that stuff, who'd be concerned with something else. Um, I guess when it comes to leadership, you know, you can always ask um, maybe more high level and general questions just in terms of things like security, um, in terms of, um, you know, just getting some sort of conceptual understanding of how a specific um, application um, can help your business processes. And I think you can essentially ask, uh, ask anything. But I think in order to uh, get that level of, you know, confidence that it's not just somebody who comes across very well and is, you know, presenting their product or their solution very well, I think there is some sort of value in including... Um, people are actually going to be interacting uh, with that technology on a day-to-day -day basis. Because some of the things that um, the, the vendor might speak to, it might not necessarily um, relate to you as somebody who doesn't necessarily um, work hands-on uh, with that type of stuff on a day-to-day -day basis. So uh, it's, a, it's a mix of both, I would say. Yeah, sort of gets back to what Nicole was saying about getting those frontline people involved in the evaluation and, and they themselves might have some good questions that help uncover the capabilities or the deficiencies in whatever technology they might be might be considering. Um, yes. Here's an interesting question. I think I've had asked you this question before, before today, as we've gotten to know each other over the last few months. But this is an interesting question that a lot of people might be wondering is, this is from Dan on YouTube, but what ERP systems do you use or prefer? Maybe, maybe from the context of, you know, what ERP systems do you find that system 1A particularly helps fill some gaps or are there ERP systems out there that are particularly good at some of these finance and accounting challenges that you've talked about? However you want to answer that is, is fine with me. Um, so maybe let's just preface by saying oh, when it comes to uh, ERP systems and the structures of ERPs, you know, on the front end, we're not front end experts. So um, in terms of what actually is the user journey when interacting with the ERP, that's not necessarily um, our expertise. So when it comes to what we do on our side is we um, interact with the ERP uh, via the back end data tables. Um, and the thing is, you know, with different ERPs, it might sit in different places, uh, it might get recorded in different positions and stuff like that. Um, so often there's just more of a, you know, solve the code or solve the key in order to ensure that we're extracting and presenting the right information. Um, but yes, I, I think, you know, we, we work with a wide range of different ERP systems, many of the um, main or uh, tier, tier, I think like tier two and tier one uh, major ERP systems. 
Um, so I think that does also uh, speak to the fact that there is um, something that can help someone. And maybe the feature that somebody uses on ERP1 um, to help with their um, AR and AP uh, processes might be different from what necessarily is someone's favorite feature on the, the different ERP system. Gotcha. Interesting. So you don't have a favorite is what you're saying. You just have uh, <laughs> different, different types that you work with. <laughs> the, ones, the ones that are easy to decipher. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Good. Um, um, so some of these challenges that you've both described so far um, with, you know, finance and accounting groups and what some of their needs are versus what they actually get from an ERP system. What, what type of business value or business benefits are at stake? You know, when you look at, I think you've sort of touched on maybe a little bit or you've, you've implied what some of the business benefits are so far, but you know, when you, when you really dig down into it, what are some, where, where are the biggest areas or biggest sources of business value or untapped business potential that, that you're, you're looking to fill? Sure. Um, so I think the big one or the big obvious one is just in terms of workflow efficiency. Um, so obviously, you know, you need a efficient workflow in order to get the results um, that the, uh, departments ultimately want, or at least get it in an appropriate amount of time. And what's the interesting thing um, about a lot of business operations and um, the processes they follow is that actually they're quite standard in theory. Um, you know, there's a process you follow with a certain amount of steps, and then you, you know, you tick something off the list, essentially. Maybe, maybe you're making it sound too simple. But um, I think what's important to just recognize and appreciate is that a lot of these operations, they shouldn't be as complicated as sometimes they um, end up being in a lot of businesses. Um, and that's often um, just due to facts that, you know, we obviously live in the real world and everything, and there can be certain hurdles and complexities or complications that can arise from a person moving from step one to let's say step two of the process and ultimately causing a lot of delays in backing things up. Um, and that might just be because of how the ERP is structured or how it caters for a certain process. So obviously we can speak uh, best to um, examples specific to um, AR and AP, but like a very common example is, you know, you follow the standard um, accounts receivable process, you know, you get an order for some goods, um, somebody, you invoice them, uh, you send over the goods, and it's 30 days later, let's say, and it's time to be collecting from your customer. And uh, when you phone them, they might say to you something like, well, we actually don't know if those goods were actually delivered to us in the first place. Now, if you had to like just consult um, what's your theoretical textbook answer to that, no, it's quite easy. You just um, give them a proof of delivery and um, easy does it, the matter settled. Uh, but then it comes back to something like, um, because the POD is an externally generated document, it's often not uh, linked to the original invoice, which means that to actually find that POD, you've got to do that manually, often like even you know searching through a file or cadenza or something like that. And um, that in itself might not sound so bad, but I guess what's important to appreciate is that that type of process is happening in conjunction with multiple hundreds and thousands of other different transactions going on, each having their own separate query and each requiring some manual intervention. So you kind of essentially want to remove as many bottle logs, uh, bottle logs, bottlenecks and hurdles 
as you want to make sure things are run smoothly and effectively. And, you know, when I guess it comes to workflows, you know, you're not speaking about workflows for the sake of having good workflows, but it's all like the byproducts that come as a result of that, whether it's productivity, cost savings, um, fewer strains on cash flow. Even something like customer relationships is something that can be at stake when it comes to uh, workflow processes. Uh, you know, ultimately, when you're dealing with a, a different business or different company, whether it's your supplier or your customer, they're in the same position as you. You know, they're also busy with all their different workflows. They've also got to be ticking off certain items to do. And ultimately, what you want to do is you want to be put them in a position or put yourself in a position where to deal with your stuff is easy. Um, it's easy to uh, approve your payment. It's easy to invoice you. And it's not something that's going to take up a lot of their time. And therefore, you can essentially get prioritized in that sense. Um, but so, yeah, workflows is definitely a, a huge one. Um, but just in terms of like um, decision making, that can be a major one as well. So we've already spoken about, um, you know, difficulties sometimes in terms of access to information or um, access to an adequate set of reports on what's going on in the specific business function. Um, so obviously, if you don't have um, access to necessarily um, some sort of insight that would have been useful to a decision in the present, you know, that's going to affect you later in the line, down the line um, in the future. So, so yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So this is kind of goes back to an earlier question too, that I had, you know, as far as um, whether or not finance leaders understand, you know, these areas of business value and opportunity that are uh, apparent, but what, on the surface, what are some of the common characteristics of organizations that may find that an ERP system isn't going to handle their needs in the finance and accounting realm? So what are those sort of on the sur surface criteria that you would say, if you if you meet these criteria, mm -hmm. it's highly likely a off-the-shelf ERP system is not going to meet these needs and you might want to think about other solutions or alternatives to, to fill those gaps. What, how would you describe some of those characteristics? Uh, sure. So um, I guess in terms of what can stretch an ERP to its uh, limits in that, um, it can, can also be largely dependent on the uh, ERP system itself. You know, there's a range of different solutions out there. Uh, and I guess each of them differentiate themselves with being a good or worse in a certain aspect or having more or less functionality. Um, so, yeah, it can depend there. I suppose if we're giving a very general answer to the question, it would probably be anything that can introduce some sort of element of complexity to a process. So um, examples of that could be, um, you know, high transaction volumes, large customer base, you have a large team, um, anything like, I guess, that could just introduce some sort of non-uniformity. So um, you're dealing with multiple different countries with different currencies. You have uh, you're a large group with different subsidiaries. Um, all those types of things can make consolidation and um, aggregation of information more complex and difficult. Uh, and that's where you might um, have those struggles. Um, an example, I guess, on um, if we're going to give examples specific to us, um, thinking with accounts payable, uh, high transaction volumes there is a big thing that can put strain on the ERP. And that just goes back to what we've said previously, is because you're getting all your documents um, from your suppliers and from outside the ERP, 
you know, you've got a team of people who's um, entering each of those documents, entering each of those transactions manually. So the ERP, uh, you know, might be fine in that sense, but I mean, putting a lot of strain on your employee resources by letting them just interact with the ERP. Yeah, and assuming that they they're going to get whatever they need from that ERP is is probably not a safe assumption from what you're saying so far. Um, uh, yeah. So um, it look it can it just depends, I guess, on the circumstance. I could either just that you're they can do it. It's just going to take a lot of time. Or um, it can be just difficult to do. So, like, I mean, like, if you're working with um, multiple subsidiaries, um, each, you know, all the different information comes in different formats, if you're using different ERPs and that, um, you're not, uh, you know, I guess, like, everything, any, probably any ERP can do anything if you've got um, low volumes and stuff. But when you're adding up that complexity of multiple transactions going on, you've got your different teams, people, different people are talking to each other. That's when things get a bit unwieldy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, here's a what I think is a funny comment. You may not think it's funny, <laughs> uh, but uh, from Kyler on LinkedIn, I think we should make bottle logs. <laughs> over, so. so with every mistake comes an opportunity. I actually liked it too. When you said it, I was like, bottle logs, that kind of sounds better than bottleneck. So. Um, anyway, that's a little off topic, but funny. We're here talking about what finance leaders need to know about digital transformation and with Shannon and Nicole from System 1A. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a look, quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Transformation Ground Control, episode number 131. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday, streaming to YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as on audio podcast platforms throughout the world every Wednesday. Check us out at Transformation Ground Control. You can also go to transformationgroundcontrol.com uh, to find past episodes as well. So be sure to check us out there. So we're here in a conversation with Shannon and Nicole from System 1A talking about what finance leaders need to know about digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. So another, coming back to what you were just talking, what Shannon was just talking about, uh, another follow-up to that would be, you know, why don't, everything you're describing sounds simple enough, or, or not simple enough, but sounds fundamental or basic enough. Like every finance and accounting department needs to do a lot of these things you guys have both been describing so far. So why do you, why is it that more ERP systems don't just, fix that problem or, or provide that capability? Is, is it not that simple or what, why do you think that is? You know, Eric, as we know, 
ERPs are just very, very complex systems and they're there to gather data and deal with huge, huge amounts of data. And at the end of the day, they're very complicated databases. And actually, as the ERPs progress, what we see is they, they're simply iterations of the previous versions, not that much change happening. Um, so traditionally, if we look at the, the model of the ERP company, it, we see that these ERP companies have this massive, this huge army of value-added resellers. And it's their domain to get the ERP system out there. It's their role. And obviously, it's also the way that they, they earn their income. Um, so not only is it their job to go and implement the ERP, but then it's also their role to be there along the way, you know, should the clients have specific needs that need to be catered for, for customized spoke reports, you know. And I think that ERP companies actually choose and expect their value-added resellers to, you know, to, for this to be their domain. For them to deal with, um, for them to deal with, you know, the the things that come along with it, the additions, and it's their way of earning money. Um, I feel like it's almost a little bit political in a sense. And we've actually, what we've done over the past few years, Eric, is we've partnered with many value-added resellers so that both them and us can benefit from, you know, from what we have to offer. At the end of the day, I think the you know, ethically, we should all be wanting to offer our clients the greatest, the best solutions, you know, giving them the most capabilities. And often by working together, we can really achieve that. So just keeping, you know, that in mind, I don't, going back to your question, I don't think that ERPs in the foreseeable future are going to include the same sort of capabilities that software like System 1A has. Yeah, yeah. Especially as more of these big software vendors are kind of, still working on that migration to the cloud and sort of rewriting yeah. their code to be fully cloud or SaaS solutions. It's it, they're still trying to get caught up on just the basic functionality, you know, yeah. not, not to mention some of this more advanced, it, it's not even advanced functionality that you're describing, but yet so many ERP systems don't, don't do Absolutely. what you're describing there. I think what's also maybe just important to um, touch on over here is we obviously speak about a lot of this um, with respect to AR and AP processes because, you know, that's what our platform specializes in. At the same time, that's a tiny slice of what the ERP actually touches on. So, you know, you've got like a huge development, um, uh, I guess, task laid out before you. Um, to uh, maybe add these functionalities or enhancements to each of the different operations that the ERP encompasses. Right, right. Now, here's a, a question to follow up on this whole thread we're, we're talking about here. And I, th I you started to answer this, but maybe we'll come back to it a little bit more directly. Um, this is from Dan on YouTube. Dan says, if an ERP is stretched to the limit in terms of functionality, what would you recommend to supplement it? And I think, Nicole, you, you sort of answered this a little bit in, a moment ago. Um, would it be a best of breed solution or maybe a custom development? And maybe I'll add to that too. Um, you know, how do, how could a product like a system one, a, how, how does it, how does it fill these needs or how does it address some of these needs or challenges that we've talked about so far? Um, yeah. So I guess uh, just in terms of um, what you recommend to supplement it um, and um, all of that, uh, look, uh, I guess it would depend in what 
business areas is your ERP uh, getting uh, stretched in? We're obviously talking here about um, uh, applications or platforms that are very uh, specialized in a specific area of a business. Um, it's not necessarily going to help you if you're having um, issues with your stock takes and stuff like that. Uh, you obviously, you know, I guess it's kind of obvious you need to uh, look in the application solution that's going to help with that. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, it's, it's a difficult question in terms of that, just because, you know, I guess the right answer for every business might be a little bit different. Um, but I think there is a, there is a worthwhile um it is worthwhile to maybe consider something like adding supplementary applications. It might be a little bit less um, cumbersome than a whole ERP or whole system overhaul or something like that. But yeah, it, it's, it's going to depend on the business that I guess you're speaking of. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, oh, sorry, in terms of, I guess, how uh, System 1A or applications like System 1A uh, can help certain limitations um, that we've discussed and everything. Um, yeah, it, co it comes back to, I guess, what we've already said, um, that the fact that you've got these applications that are specialized uh, with regards to a very specific function, and therefore they're taking into account those areas where potentially the limitations of the ERP uh, can be stretched. Um, so to just give maybe some examples of that, um, with regards to the AR and AP uh, EP side of things, and maybe you could expand to, I guess, um, other, other operations as well. Um, things like information access. So we've spoken about that like in a literal sense in terms of licensing, uh, whereas you can have something like an add-on application which connects directly to your ERP, even if it's uh, via read-only connection, but essentially takes that information and po populates it on a platform that can be used by everyone as and when they need it. And you don't need to take into account you know, the difficulty of going through somebody with a license. Um, it also can take into account things like we've spoken about information navigation journeys. So again, making that more intuitive to the specific department um, that you're dealing with versus, you know, designing that at a global level. So it can make those things much easier and more efficient. Uh, we've spoken, I guess, I guess already about like reports and stuff like that and just having access to a comprehensive set of information. So I think we're quite good there. Um, but also it can relate to things like... Um, where you have complex situations such as, um, you know, you're dealing with um, multiple ERPs at the same time because you've got different um, subsidiaries, you, you, or you have a merger, or um, um, you, you're moving from one ERP to another. Uh, because you have an application that's um, rather one ERP that's taking into account all operations, but instead is specializing in a specific operation across all ERPs, uh, it enables all those different ERPs to essentially talk to one another a lot better with respect to that function. So whether it's if you're trying to consolidate information um, across your different units, you're in a merger, or um, you're trying to move from one, e you, I guess you're on in some sort of digital transformation um, stage yourself, those types of things can be a lot simpler just because that uh, application has um, expertise across the different ERPs, or at least knows what they're all about. Um, there's also like, um, yeah, so there's also like things for like support, just for like ancillary functions that can help support core ERP functionality. So like uh, for outside communications, a big thing, making sure that that communication takes place in a centralized platform where everything else is taking place 
versus something that's taking place externally and potentially getting lost or forgotten about. Right, right. Yeah, it makes makes total sense. Um, here's a question that I think is a really good one. It's it's addressed specifically to you, Nicole, but either of you can answer this. Um, but this is from uh, Jeffrey on YouTube. Jeffrey says, do you happen to deal with clients with silos in their organization? And how often do you address the situation in order for your solution to deliver its intended value? Um, I'm going to let Shannon answer that. Do you happen to deal with clients with silos in their organization? How do you often address the situation in order for your solution to deliver its intended value? Um, look, yes, I think you can have a situation where there are silos, you know, like sales uh, speaks is very separate to one another and then you've got collections and all of that. Um, the way I guess sometimes you've got the challenge that you've gone through a specific team first when you know you're starting that onboarding journey. And, um, you know, there can be, I guess, that challenge to make sure that the other stakeholders involved in that process are also, um, you know, in, um, uh, you know, uh, speaking with the application or participating in the application and getting value there. Um, it's a combination of two. I suppose the thing thing is, is you need to, I guess, communicate that to your clients to get the other stakeholders involved. But there is always, I think, um, some dependence on that being driven internally. Um, that uh, yeah, you've got that. Um, uh, collaboration between your different departments or stakeholders. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, in, very interesting. And it sounds like a lot of the clients you work with are finance organizations that are dealing with silos by definition because they've acquired other companies or they're global multinational organizations. And that by definition creates silos that it sounds mm -hmm. like your product and these challenges we've talked about are trying to address um, along mm -hmm. the way. Um, what about, you know, here's a question I think might be on the top of a lot of people's minds, and it might be a trigger for some people listening. So I apologize if I trigger anyone in the audience here today. Um, but let's talk about integration. You know, is it difficult to integrate multiple systems? Because essentially what you're describing or what I think you're describing so far is a situation where you have a core ERP system that's sort of like your, your single source of truth. But there's workflow limitations, there's transparency and visibility limitations that we've talked about so far. And so now we're talking about potentially adding another system that addresses some of those deficiencies. So is it difficult to do that? And how does the difficulty and cost of integration and having a sort of, a, I don't want to say it's a total best of breed approach, but it sort of is. Um, what is the cost and value of that versus, you know, the, the, you know, the, the challenges of that? How would you, how would you describe the, the cost benefit of having that sort of uh, best of breed approach where you, you integrate multiple systems to address these challenges? Eric, I think, you know, there are two questions to that and I'll, I'll begin by answering the first part. Um, I certainly can't speak about other add-ons or, you know, other, other software, but what I can say is the beauty of system 1A is the ease with which, you know, with which it works. That is really the beauty of the system. It's totally, a totally seamless integration and it's totally non-invasive. And I think one of the greatest factors is that within under an hour, we can have a new client up and running and looking at live data, you know, all being able to access their system immediately, the different levels within, you know, within the workplace, being able to access the information that will make them more efficient and more effective. 
So I think the ease of impl implementation, the user-friendliness of our system definitely empowers um, employees at all levels and, of course, managers and decision-makers at the end of the day. So that seamless, you know, that totally seamless integration is very important to us. And we've seen, we've seen how excited our clients become that, you know, they can almost immediately and instantly start using the dashboard and start working with our system. Yeah. So the so what you're saying is the cost there is a cost and a maybe a risk. There's a cost and a risk associated with adding a system like a system one A, but the business value typically would would exceed that. Is that a fair summary or statement? Definitely. But I think Shannon, maybe you can add a little bit more about the cost benefit. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. So um yeah, probably in terms of assessing risks of integration and stuff like that. Um probably one thing you would just want to assess is with the uh, application that you're looking at, what are the controls in place such that um, your core ERP system won't be corrupted? So that's probably like a main uh, risk, just if we're talking in a general sense, it's probably something you'd want to ask. Um, given, I guess, System 1A is uh, read-only, nothing gets actually put into the ERP, and in cases where things are uh, put into the ERP by the system, there are certain permissions and approvals that you have to get before you're doing that. Uh, we obviously try to limit uh, those risks as much as possible. Um, look, and I guess uh, in terms of uh, cost-benefit analysis and all of that, um, I suppose, you know, your role in strategic digital transformation, you're quite aware that any decision or lack of decision you make uh, is going to have uh, costs and risks associated with it. You know, whether it's up front and it's something that's very obvious or it's something that's very hidden and down the line. So, um, yes, I suppose it's going to be uh, growing pains when, you know, changing up your system or adding different applications. There's going to be uh, costs involved with that. Um, but you're going to have a lot of down-the-line benefits or um, that's ultimately what you're aiming for in terms of efficiency and in terms of cost savings, which is something that, I guess, on the flip side, would be a op uh, the opportunity cost of not having um, if you stay with things under the status quo. Uh, but look, it differs, I guess, from different businesses. And I don't think um, the takeaway from the session should be, you know, go crazy and just add on 10,000 different add-on applications to your ERP. Um, that's obviously not, um, not what we'd be recommending and probably wouldn't be the smartest thing to do. I think, though, just given the fact that we are in a position where, you know, change is happening every day, things are evolving, it's important to enter these conversations with an open mind in how those types of applications can potentially benefit your business and then take that consideration forward. Yeah. Yeah. And if I could add to that too, one thing that we see with, with uh, a lot of our clients that are going through the purchasing cycle of purchasing technology for their digital transformations, a lot of times they're sold a vision an unrealistic vision of what an ERP system can do and why you should not want to consider other alternatives to not to replace ERP, but to augment ERP. You know, if I'm an ERP vendor or a VAR and I'm not a partner of yours, look, I know you said you partner with some VARs, but if I'm not a partner of yours and I, and I think about your solution as a potential complementary solution to what I'm selling, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna, I might feel threatened by that. And I might say, no, no, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, you don't need a product like System 1A. My product, my ERP product can do everything. Um, and, and so it, in that sales aggression or whatever you want to call it, or that, that attempt to sell this unrealistic vision of ERP software, I think a lot of times people end up with a blind spot that says, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a CFO vendors telling me their ERP system can do everything you've described. And we've talked about here so far today, but I think, you know, those of us that have been through it would find and would argue that that's not true. And that you have to be, to use your words, um, Shannon, you have to have an open mind as to what, what the options are out there. That might've been your words, Nicole. I, I can't remember who said it, but I one, one of you said it. <laughs> one of us. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, those are, those are really great points. We're here talking about what finance leaders need to know about digital transformation and with Shannon and Nicole from System 1A. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're gonna take a look, quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 131. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday, streaming to YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as on audio podcast platforms throughout the world every Wednesday. Check us out at Transformation Ground Control. You can also go to transformationgroundcontrol.com uh, to find past episodes as well. So be sure to check us out there. So we're here in a conversation with Shannon and Nicole from System 1A talking about what finance leaders need to know about digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. Best of breed and integration, those aren't bad words or they shouldn't be bad words like they used to be. I mean, 20 years ago, yeah, best of breed and integration was kind of a pain. And now, you know, it's not easy, but it's a lot easier now than it used to be. So I think, you know, having that open mind and really looking at what is it we really need, where we can get the business value and knowing that it's probably not going to be one core one ERP solution and that's it. I mean, rarely do we ever see that with our clients that one ERP system is going to solve all of their challenges. Usually there needs to be other systems that augment that. Uh, you know, years ago, Eric, when we started and our first few clients were signing up here and wanted to use our system and everything, but always think, wow, they actually have this openness and they have this flexibility and this willingness to change because it's not always easy to, to run with mm-hmm. change. I think by nature, we, you know, we're happy to do what we used to and what we believe we're authentic. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of along, along those lines too, Nicole, like, um, this is off script here this, and this isn't an audience question. It's just a, a random one that I thought of is along those lines, do you see differences in different geographies? Cause you, you're responsible for selling your software, not just in South Africa, but across the world. Do you see like different, you know, differences in cultures or, or expectations and, 
uh, sophistication and maturities organizations? Does it vary in, across different regions from what you've seen? You know, I think there are there similarities and differences. I think at the end of the day, and obviously it depends on this particular company, and it depends on, you know, at the CFO level, at the decision-making level, how open and how flexible and how, um, you know, willing to adapt and how resilient a company is. And I do think that there has been sort of a, a turnaround, that there is, people are looking, like you say, best of breed is not seen as the word that it was seen as 20 years ago. So there's definitely a general trend towards, you know, looking at what else there is out there. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, that's good. I, I think that's probably a positive thing. If anything, it, just to keep an sure. open mind and to know that there might be limitations in the solution that you're buying and, and just being aware of those, that yeah. that's huge just to have that awareness and understand. The awareness is everything. Yeah. So... Along those lines, then, speaking of awareness, when finance leaders are evaluating potential technology, whether it's an ERP system or, or other types of technology, how how can finance leaders assess whether or not their current or planned systems adequately address these gaps that we've talked about so far? And I think, as we just said, awareness is, is such a huge factor, that, that emotional intelligence and that awareness. And I think if you can have wonderful communication with your team, if you can consult with your team, if you can consult with your team at all levels and receive feedback and for there to be this, this mutual respect and this mutual understanding, you know, then you will be better able to assess are things being done the way they need to be done. You'll understand the work that's actually been done you know, at ground level and through all the levels within a company. Um, I think that, you know, as we said, by being inclusive, by being open, by being flexible, just having that awareness, you know, I think decision makers will ultimately be able to make the right decision. And yeah. 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 Shan, I don't know. Do you have anything to add to that? Uh, no, I think you covered it quite well. Like, I think it's it's just so important to be including uh, people who are on the ground and creating that culture that they're able to actually give their view and their opinion versus maybe just automatically siding with what leadership says. So um, yes, it's a, it's a collaborative effort. Right. What about um, one other thing too, this sort of goes back to the, the integration uh, sort of question here. And, and actually a couple of people have asked this. That's why I want to come back to it and make sure we cover it. Um, but I'll, I'll choose Jeremy or Jeremy from YouTube. His sort of rendition of this question is, it appears to be a great tool to automate and free up staff with significant business intelligence. It appears system 1A accesses local data and creates a web-based application. Um, is my data safe? And I want to hone in on that last part and come back to another question. Someone else asked about cybersecurity um, and, you know, how, how do you lock down this information or this data knowing that now you've got core ERP system and then you've got a system like system 1A over here accessing the core ERP system. How do you, how do you guys address cybersecurity? What are your thoughts on the whole cybersecurity and data accessibility, data protection, data privacy, all that stuff. How do, you, how do you address that? Sure. Look, I think uh, whenever you're having these types of conversations, cybersecurity and data safety is going to come up. It's uh, with, uh, with justification, something that's very topical. Um, so obviously here at System a we do take uh, security and safety very seriously. Uh, and we do so by ensuring that we do comply with any uh, protection of regulation acts, 
when it comes to processing uh, different businesses' information. So that would be things like Papier over here or GDPR overseas um, and upholding those standards and regulations as well. And I think just taking steps beyond that just to ensure that every business's data that we're using from is treated with the integrity that it deserves and then it's anonymized and hashed uh, where needed. So um, users can be ensured that um, although they're using a platform that speaks to the ERP, that their data is um, safe and protected as well. Right. Yeah, that's definitely top of mind for, for a lot of people um, that are going through these transformations of cybersecurity and is my data safe? And that's another sort of, I don't want to say it's an unfounded fear, but it's another potential risk that people have in their minds that makes them think, well, maybe I don't want to have another third-party system access my ERP system because of, of cybersecurity issues. And, and quite frankly, I've heard ERP vendors use that as an excuse of why you should not want to consider a third-party yeah. system. So I think that's you know just important to kind of understand objectively what what that all means. Um, well, good. So I guess just to, to maybe summarize everything we've talked about here so far today, are there any sort of closing words of wisdom or closing advice that either or both of you would leave for organizations that are in, you know, trying to figure out how to best address their finance and accounting needs when it, when it comes to their digital transformation, anything as far as how to get started or other things to consider that we haven't talked about? What, what would you say to that? Sure. Uh, Nicole, do you want to start or should I start? You can start. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so I guess um, just in closing, I think when you are considering your different um, digital transformation options or um, your ERP options, I think we've already spoken about the fact that um, openness, uh, I think, is always key to these understandings as well as a deep understanding of how a specific operation works. Things can sound very nice um, in theory, and they can sound very nice when it's being presented to you uh, um, with conviction and everything. Uh, but there is some sort of importance with going into detail in terms of how a specific uh, operation gets done, what are the challenges that your team is facing, and whether um, there are solutions out there in the market that might be able to address these concerns or challenges. Shane, if I can just jump in there, we actually, Eric, we always offer clients a free trial with our system so that they're able to see for themselves you know, how, how you're able to use it, the ease of use. Um, like Shannon says, that you have to have that openness, but it sometimes helps if you're actually experiencing it for yourself. Right. And Nicole, since you're... Since you're since you uh, handle global sales, then Nicole, how how do people learn more about the product? How do they take advantage of the free trial? How do they get a hold of you guys? What what's the best way to so take next steps? Which is www.system1a.com or our email address. You can email us on info at system1a.com, and of course on our website, all our information is there. Our contact details are there, and there's always somebody who's able to answer any questions and provide you with a, you know, more information on the system. All right. Thank you, Shannon and Nicole. Great conversation. Really enjoyed having you on the show for the first time and hope to have you on again. We also appreciated all the great questions from the audience as well. Some great conversation and, and additions to the, to the questions I had. So thank you for that. And we're going to uh, debrief on some of the threads we, we talked about in this conversation. Uh, first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control.
if you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 131. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find it on audio podcast platforms throughout the world. And you can also go to transformationgroundcontrol.com uh, to see and watch past episodes of this show. So Kyler, we just had Shannon and Nicole from System 1A on the show. We talked about finance leaders, what they need to know about digital transformation. What were some of your thoughts from that conversation? Yeah, well, I mean, great job, Shannon and Nicole. They um, did an awesome job kind of talking about not only their product, but the key nuances to finance and, uh, finance and accounting departments. And, and it's a little nerdy, but I'm like fascinated by finance and accounting departments because they not only are one of the, the most complex departments when it comes to a digital transformation, but they're often the most tender, tenured and then also an area in which other people outside cross-functional roles have challenges when it comes to getting vendors paid, getting partners paid, setting up new partners. All those different pieces really live within the backbone of the finance department. So it's, it's so critically important, but it's also a unique set of requirements that a lot of people throughout the organization might not understand. So I think it's so so interesting and so important to focus on really that key area of the business within a transformation project. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a lot of times it's strange because so often, ironically and strangely enough, finance and accounting groups get sort of overlooked. You know, it's oftentimes a CFO that's writing the checks or approving the checks, but yet he or she doesn't have, you know, the capabilities he or she needs for their teams to be able to do their jobs well, you know, as a result of it. So it's just an interesting dynamic. It is. And and when it comes to these specific systems, I think um, Shannon and Nicole did a great job of kind of talking about System 1A and explaining it. But when you are looking at kind of a, a specialty system that might either bolt on and enhance a certain area of your ERP system or integrate with it in some way, say you're a very manufacturing supply chain heavy organization and you need a uh, supply chain management system to integrate with your ERP. How do you ensure that that key integration strategy is going to be effective when you're looking at these specialty technologies? Because a lot of times they can sound perfect and cool and amazing. Um, but then when it comes to how do they holistically give you data that integrates with other systems and that interoperability of digital operations. How do you make sure that all makes sense, Eric? Great question. In fact, that's that's a great question. Uh, we could have asked the, the guest as well. But um, what I would say is that, you know, that's part of the evaluation process that you should do when you're looking at potential technologies is, does the system 
A, does it meet the requirements and capabilities that that I need for my organization? But B, does it can it integrate well with other systems? And I think a lot of times people overlook or don't really think much about B because they get sold on this vision of, you know, this ERP system can do everything you need. Don't worry about integrating with other systems unless it's our own software. You know, the vendors, this is me acting as a vendor trying to sell you software. Um, and that's, that's really, that's a big problem. So a lot of times what, what's important for a lot of organizations is to make sure you, you have a system that has an open architecture that can be integrated easily with other systems or to take it even further. A lot of times organizations are focusing less on the application itself that they're evaluating and deploying and focusing more on a platform. So what's the general platform that we're deploying to give us that flexibility in the future to be able to maybe write our own code to, to add to the core capabilities of the technology we're using off the shelf and or to be able to integrate um, into uh, other third parties uh, or third party applications, that sort of thing. And um, like we talked about with Shannon and Nicole, best of breed is not a bad thing like it used to be unless you have a system that doesn't have a good open architecture that's that's harder to integrate with. Uh, for example, SAP has always been notorious for being difficult to integrate with third parties. Whereas say Microsoft Dynamics or um, Infor, Epicor, those are, or, or Salesforce, um, those are a few examples of systems that have a more open architecture that is easier to integrate with other systems. So if you think you're going to need that sort of best of breed approach or a system like a system 1A or any sort of application to augment what your ERP system can do, you want to make sure that the ERP system you're deploying allows you to do that. And that's where a lot of, a lot of organizations get into trouble. Absolutely. That holistic view is so important when you are looking at these types of projects. It could be amazing in the fact that it gives you a really competitive advantage in one area of your business, but if it's not translating effectively to the entire organization, then what's really the value there? So definitely a, a really important conversation. I know we have a huge um, finance network here, so I'd actually like to ask a favor of the audience right now. We're putting together um, a, a finance-based uh, list of what you should consider in following this interview if you are going through a digital transformation and the finance and accounting department. So I'd love your insight on what should you consider when you're going through a digital transformation from a finance standpoint. If you drop it in the comments here, I'd really appreciate it. We'll absorb it into some of our thought leadership and address it on further episodes. But thank you to Nicole and Shannon. And thank you, Eric, for all of your great insight. That's a really important and, as you said, often overlooked conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Really good stuff. They're, they're both great guests and they made it so easy to understand, too. So I love that conversation because uh, I'm not a finance person. I'm not an accounting person, but everything they said made, made total sense. And uh, hopefully it did to the audience as well. I'll be curious to see the audience's feedback on what you just asked there too, Kyler. Um, well, good. Well, thank you again for, for uh, to Shannon and Nicole for being here. We're going to shift gears here and uh, play you a mashup from some of our past digital stratosphere conferences. You'll get to see a, a mashup of past speakers and different topics that we've covered. Um, that's all in the spirit of getting you excited for stratosphere 2023, which is coming in October to Denver, Colorado. Um, we usually get people from all, all over the world joining us. So hopefully you'll be one of those people that can join. You can go to stratosphere2023.com to learn more about it. But we're going to play you that mashup here in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. 
Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 131. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyla Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on audio and video podcast platforms uh, throughout the world. Thank you for being here and uh, excited for our last segment here today. We're going to play you a mashup of some of the thought leadership and different speakers and topics that we've covered in past editions of our Digital Stratosphere Conference, which if you're not aware Prior to COVID, we used to do, I think we had done three or four of them, three or four live digital stratosphere events, which is a uh, technology agnostic digital transformation conference. So we cover everything from strategy to project management, change management, uh, data migration, process improvement, uh, benefits realization, value creation, all the stuff that we want to know about digital transformation to make it successful we cover in the digital stratosphere conference. And then when COVID hit, we started doing it online and we did digital only versions, but something about 2023 felt like it was the time to bring it back to the live, the live in-person version um, in which we were doing at the beginning of October in Denver, Colorado. Um, and you can learn more about the event and see the agenda and the lineup and the way it's coming together on that speaker lineup by going to stratosphere2023.com. The pricing is, in my opinion, extremely reasonable, and uh, you can get an early bird discount through uh, August 15th. If you register early, you'll save considerable money, so be sure to get the early bird discount. Go to stratosphere2023.com. Kyler and I will both be there. So, I mean, if that's not a selling point enough, um, there are other speakers, plenty of other speakers, too. Um, so, and we've got some great, uh, some great, uh, great lineup for you. Some great entertainment as well. Um, on on the Thursday evening of the event, we'll have uh, some live music and, and happy hour networking sorts of events as well. So, really look forward to seeing you there. So, let's roll this clip of past, uh, sort of a mashup of past discussions of uh, at Digital Stratosphere, and also the other value of playing this is just to give you sort of a crash course in digital transformation. It's a lot, a lot of different topics we'll cover here in a short period to give you sort of a taste and a flavor of the different things to be thinking about in digital transformation. So let's roll the clip. Why don't I jump in and just talk about this whole concept of digital transformation utopia to start? What, what exactly do I mean by that? Well, when we talk about utopia, um, you think about all the different technologies that are out there. There's a lot of different technologies that are really cool, um, you know, sort of groundbreaking forward thinking technologies that have the ability to totally transform a business and, and provide completely new competencies that a lot of organizations have never had in the past. So you've got things like AI and machine learning, you have big data, internet of things. Um, people are th thinking and talking a lot about customer experience, employee experience. How do we make for a better customer and employee experience? Um, you have robotics, robotic process automation, e-commerce mobility, a lot of different trends, buzzwords, technologies that can be used. And 
most organizations are at point A, which is where they are today, and they're looking to that vision of the future of what point B may be. And what they find or what we find is that a lot of times organizations have very unrealistic expectations of how big of a jump they're about to make, how much effort, time, resources, and money it's going to take to get there. And ultimately, that's where a lot of companies first make their first big mistake is they don't fully understand the magnitude of change that they're about to go through. And they don't fully understand the uh, sweat and tears that go into getting to that point B, whatever that may be. So I think a lot of this too is also looking at these different technologies and it's certainly okay to be enamored by some of these cool technologies, but you also want to be pragmatic and realistic about it. Where can we realistically leverage technology to help our organization um, maybe not in five or 10 years, but just in the next two or three years, what are some technologies that make sense for us to adopt that are aligned with our overall strategy and maybe, um, get us down the path of taking on some of the more advanced technologies in the future. And that's okay. You don't need to adopt all these technologies that I have listed here overnight and, uh, maybe years before you really seriously consider some of these, but a lot of organizations get too caught up in the technical buzzwords and the the technical aspects and forget about some of the other aspects, which I'm going to, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about what some of those other aspects are here in just a few minutes. So this, this unattainable transformation utopia is one of the, the big challenges that organizations face. And I would say, by the way, this whole concept of transformation utopia is becoming more and more of a problem. It's an increasing problem over time because technology is becoming more advanced. It's changing faster. It's just unbelievable capabilities that are being developed by, by some of these software companies, which is really cool stuff, right? That's, that's good stuff. I'm not knocking the vendors for doing what they do because they're good at it and they're sort of pushing the frontiers of what technology can do. But the problem is organizations where they are today is very different than where technology is. And so that chasm between where we are today and where technology is, that's only growing. And I suspect that's only going to grow over time because it's just a fact of life that organizations and people generally change a lot slower than technology. So you can see that over time that that chasm will, that divide will increase uh, and magnify over time. So what we see in this whole concept of utopia and this unrealistic utopia is that there's a flawed perception that the transformation is going to be easy. It's going to be cheap. It's going to be fast because we're using commercial off the shelf software. The vendors are telling us that technology is the best thing since sliced bread. And that's just not true. And so you, you sort of that, that whole idea of being enamored by technology um, and combined with the fact that the vendors are aggressively selling the technology oftentimes leads to this unrealistic expectation that the transformation is going to be easy. There's also an expectation that the technology is, is a silver bullet. So they think that by putting in technology, it's going to solve their business problems. And technology certainly is a tool and an enabler to solve the business problems, but it's only one piece of the overall puzzle. You also have to improve your processes. You have to change your culture, change your people, your organizational design. Um, your leadership oftentimes has to has to change and, and create a, a clear aligned vision for where they want to go as an organization. So there's a lot more to it that I would argue is actually more uh, important than the technology piece. When you look at the people, the process and the overall strategy pieces of transformation and change, those components are a lot more important than the technology itself. Organizations typically underestimate the magnitude of risk and change, oftentimes because they don't know. They don't go through these major transformations that often, or they think that going through a massive, you know, let's just call it an ERP rollout or some sort of modern digital transformation, they'll think that that's just like 
back in 98 when they switched over to Windows 98. It's how hard can it be? We're just going to roll out a new desktop operating system. It's an IT thing. Let's not worry too much about it. Well, technology is a lot different today than it was back when Windows 98 was rolled out in that example. This technology is fundamentally transforming how businesses operate. And so with that disruption, if you will, in, in, in what could be a good way, you need to also mitigate that risk and make sure that you're managing the entire transformation accordingly. And that includes addressing the human component of transformation, which 25 years into my career, I haven't seen the needle move a whole lot in terms of organizational and leadership focus on or prioritization on the human component of transformation. The ones that are more successful certainly do. Uh, the clients we work with that are most successful are the ones that understand, recognize that the change is going to be difficult, even if they think on the surface that their employees are all on board and they're all excited for new technologies. They, they don't fall for that. They know that even though people are on board and excited, there are going to be underlying fundamental resistances to change because of the magnitude that organizations are changing in today's day and age. And then finally, but certainly not least, um, organizational misalignment is a big reason why companies fail to achieve this transformation utopia. They're not rowing in the same direction. They haven't clearly articulated their goals and objectives as an organization. And they certainly haven't articulated clearly how this transformation ties into and supports and enables their overall transformation as well. So these are some of the challenges and some of the roadblocks and barriers that organizations oftentimes face as it relates to transformation utopia. And by the way, before I jump into this next segment, um, I encourage you to ask any questions you have along the way. I didn't mention that before, but I typically uh, do not like, uh, I typically don't like presenting for 50 minutes straight. So I'd love any sort of interruption uh, via questions. So if you do have questions, feel free to drop those in the chat and I'll have Kyler uh, jump in and, and uh, ping me with any questions that look particularly interesting, either as we go and or at the end. Um, I can't see the chat right now because of uh, I'm sharing my entire screen. So I'm keeping the PowerPoint up here. But certainly let me know if uh, you have you have uh, any questions and Kyler can ping me with those. So I've talked a little bit about that transformation utopia. What's sort of the problem statement, the context, the, the lay of the land of why organizations struggle with change and why that struggle with change and why that magnitude of change is becoming even more uh, apparent and more common here today and why that why that divide is growing even more today. But now I want to shift gears and talk about some of the common transformation challenges that we face in the 2020s and beyond, and how do we navigate those, those common challenges that tie back to those problem statements that I, that I laid out just a moment ago. So when we look at transformation success versus failure, I mentioned before that the companies that don't reach the third stage of success share a common set of uh, characteristics or traits, and the organizations that do reach the third stage of success share another set of common characteristics and strengths. And so I, I feel like, you know, as having done this for so long, if you tell me what an organization is or isn't doing, and if I were a betting person, which I'm not, I, I absolutely cannot stand to bet. Uh, I don't go to Vegas or bet money. But if I did, I could feel pretty confident that I'm going to bet on, I, I can tell whether or not an organization is going to succeed or fail based on some of these, these common characteristics. So some of those characteristics in, include uh, on the failure side, um, some of the things we've talked about, overambition of scope, unrealistic and over-optimistic time and cost expectations. And I'm going to stop and just talk about that first bullet on the failure side just for a moment, because that's such an important one that it is actually a root cause for a lot of the, the other things that you see listed down below. And the reason for that is when 
there's a common dynamic in a transformation where you've got a you've got a clearly defined problem statement that our let's just say our technology is outdated. Uh, vendors not supporting our product, or we're still running on a mainframe AS four hundred system, and it's time for us to get with the times. Whatever it is, there's some sort of problem that you're trying to fix with your transformation. And oftentimes, most organizations we work with are pretty well aligned around that. They all sort of understand and agree with and align with that problem statement. So there's a certain amount of uh, optimism that comes with that. There, people are on board. They've got that burning platform that they want to change. They want to get rid of that old system and move to something new. So on the surface, it looks like our organization is totally aligned. We're all on board and resistance to change probably isn't going to be a huge issue because everyone seems to be on board. So it creates this false expectation that, well, everyone's on board, so this isn't going to be difficult for us. They all want new technology, so let's put in some new technology and they're going to, they're going to love it. And you combine that with the optimism and the excitement and the momentum that gets built when people actually start seeing what the new technologies could potentially do. And so it creates this uh, general excitement, this momentum in the project, which is great. You, you want to harness that momentum. But what ends up happening on the dark side of that momentum and excitement and optimism is that people then start to think that this is going to be easier or a lot easier than it really is going to be. And so when it comes time for us to go through the implementation planning process, the procurement process of new technologies, the, the way we structure the project, where we invest our time and money, many organizations find that uh, they, they have underestimated across the board how much time and effort and cost it's going to take. Um, so that's, that unrealistic expectation is a very real and common dynamic that actually leads to a lot of these failures that these other failure points listed here in front of you. Um, and, and part of the reason for that, by the way, is that we, we haven't adequately scoped enough time and effort on a lot of these activities because we were so optimistic, we were overly optimistic, and we have all these blind spots now about what this transformation is really going to look like. Um, so we haven't thought through the business operations. We haven't, um, we're, we're trusting our vendors too much. We're not managing those vendors. We're sort of deferring or outsourcing the project to them. Um, and they end up acting in ways oftentimes that are not in your best interest. So that creates another set of problems. Uh, you don't have the delivery capabilities. You haven't thought of, through the transition of how are we going to change our processes? How are we going to change our people? Um, we're going to automate 50% of Susie's time, but what are we going to do with that 50% of Susie's time? We need to make decisions like that. Um, these are just a few small examples, but you magnify that across your entire organization. There's a mass number of things that need to be thought through about how we're going to transition and move beyond just deploying new technology. How are we going to make sure that we're actually using that technology and that it fits our business? Uh, lack of contingency planning. What happens if we can't ship product at the time we go live? Um, should we stockpile inventory? Should we push out our ETA dates or our, our uh, available promise dates? Um, all that stuff, you, know, you need to think about plan B. What happens if we do run into trouble and how are we going to manage and mitigate that? Um, and then some of the other things that you'll see here listed here are very much related to uh, organizational change too. We haven't managed the people and cultural change pieces of it. You know, even though that's just one bullet in a list of many, that's actually, that should be by itself should be several bullets because it's so important. And uh, that's a, that's an underlying thread that a lot of organizations struggle with. Okay. We're showing you a mashup of some of our past digital stratosphere thought leadership and speakers and topics. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out. 
Hi, this is Eric Kimberling with Third Stage Consulting and your host of Transformation Ground Control. I want to encourage you to read our Guide to Organizational Change Management. It's a free report or a free guide that we published. It's one that I actually wrote that talks about best practices and lessons learned as it relates to change management. So as you know, on this podcast, we cover a lot of stuff related to the human sides of change, organizational change management, including training, communications, org design, all kinds of stuff as it relates to change management. So if you're trying to learn more about change management or you're looking for more direction and ideas on how to get started on your change management strategy and your overall journey, be sure to check out this guide. You can read it by scanning the QR code on the screen in front of you or in the links below for this particular podcast episode. You can find a link to uh, take you to the page that will allow you to register to go ahead and download that and read it for free. So be sure to check it out. It's the Guide to Organizational Change Management uh, written by yours truly. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think and hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 131. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on audio and video podcast platforms throughout the world. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're playing you a mashup of past digital stratosphere conferences to give you a flavor of what types of stuff we cover at that conference. Let's continue rolling the mashup here. Now, when we flip the coin here and look at what are the common patterns we see with organizations that succeed, we see that these are the organizations that um, get experienced practitioners and a key leadership position. So people that have either been through transformations in the past, they've successfully led some sort of transformation, even if it's not at ERP or CRM or HCM or digital transformation, but some sort of massive change. Um, you get people like that in key roles, either at the executive and leadership level and or at the project transformation level as well. Um, you have to have a sort of healthy skepticism around what you hear from the industry. So when you're buying new technologies, keep in mind you, you're dealing with sales reps. These are people that want to sell you the best of what they offer. They aren't necessarily incentivized to sell you the worst of what they have to offer, what the dark side of what they're offering is. And by the way, any technology you deploy, and I, when I say any, I, I literally mean any technology you deploy is going to have a, a dark side. There's something that's not perfect about that technology, or there's some sort of risk that needs to be managed. And it's your job to figure out what those risks are. It's not your vendor's job. They're not, you have to assume they're not necessarily going to tell you the difficulties of deploying the technology or all the roadblocks and pitfalls that you might run into when deploying their technology. So that's your job to figure out. And that's where we oftentimes help our clients from a program management perspective is just to make sure that they have a realistic expectation around some of these things. Um, you want to balance between technology and the business, which is very important. You don't want this to become a technology-driven project. Um, and if you do, let it become a technology-driven project. It's going to be just that. It's going to be new technology that people underuse, maybe in many cases don't use at all, and it's not going to deliver the business value that you expect. In many cases, it's actually going to hinder your business and create operational disruptions that are very hard to overcome. Um, we have seen many businesses over the years that have gone out of business as a re direct result of their ERP implementation failure. And in fact, if you Google it, you can find a, the names of lots of organizations, especially in the mid-market, that just got completely uh, overwhelmed by their transformation. They spent way too much time and money on it. So therefore their, their cost structure increased and to add insult to injury, they go live and it, it disrupts their operations and brings, brings them to their knees. So those are very extreme situations, but the more moderate failures and challenges are, are what's even more common and what most organizations should really be worried about. 
Um, you want to make sure you're not over ambitious and doing, in essence, avoiding a lot of the things you see in the red box. Um, you want to make sure that you you've clearly defined your future state operationally, organizationally, culture-wise, uh, technologically. You want to make sure you understand how all those systems are going to tie together, how the data is going to migrate over, what your new processes are going to be, what the org design is going to be, what your future state culture is going to be. All that stuff, that future state needs to be clearly defined before you ever start deploying technology. And if you've got a system integrator that's rushing to get on site to start deploying technology before you've done those things, you should really call a timeout and say, let's figure out what we want to be when we grow up and then we'll bring on the system integrator because we're going to be able to manage that system integrator and manage the transformation a lot better and more effectively and more cost effectively if we're doing so in a way uh, after the fact that we've or after we've already defined some of these things that we need to define in the future state. Um, and, and I won't cover all the rest of these here. I'll, I'll let you read through them, but those are some of the major points I wanted to cherry pick from the success side of the equation is, is making sure that you are following more of the best practices and things that you see on the right side in the green box than those on the left, on the red side. The, the things in red are the things you really want to avoid and be aware of and watch uh, the tendency to want to gravitate back towards that red side of the box. Because when left to their own devices, humans, if we don't have a clear governance structure and a clear vision for what we're doing for this transformation, we're going to drift towards the red box on the left. That's just human nature. And that's that gravity I was talking about in that third stage rocket launch analogy. The red box is the gravity that's pulling you back to it. And so you have to be very, you have to be a strong leader. You have to be very deliberate, have a clear vision, uh, make the difficult decisions that are driven by your business, not by the technology, not by the software vendors, not by your system integrators, but driven by the business. That's the stuff that you want to use to drive the overall transformation and, and give you sort of that North Star for how you guide your project. Essentially, we, we do operate in an industry that is focused on implementation. And now I just want to talk to what, what we consider to be three critical phases in terms of that road to that, that ERP life cycle. Um, absolutely, the implementation is essential, but it really is just the enabling platform that we're putting in place at this stage. And too often, we have that premature declaration of victory at the point of go live, and uh, the, the, the very effective project governance and oversight and structures and capabilities that we've put in place dissipates, and things start to unravel a little bit as per that low road. And we fall into that, that valley of despair. Um, and of course, the, the the depth and breadth of that value of despair is going to is going to vary, depending on how far on that low road to failure we are. So it's absolutely essential that we keep the project on the high road. And, and even with the best will in the world, there is going to be some uh, disruption to business go live. Even if we do manage to stay on the high road to success, and we have, and we avoid these common pitfalls, those five pitfalls that are to find on the low road to failure, even if we do avoid them, there's going to be some disruption. We are going, um, to some extent, we are going to the, the value of despair, but hopefully it is short-lived and we are quickly able to come out of it. And I think from a from a governance and, and tracking perspective, we're able to quickly come out of it and track the extent and, and understand whether we are on an upward curve on the way to that third phase of optimization. So I think that's the, the, the first thing that we need to recognize your digital transformation or ERP program is going to follow one of these two roads to some extent. Um, and very important that we understand on which route, on which road we are at any point in time. And very important to understand when we are moving from stabilization to optimization. Because 
one cannot jump from implementation to optimization without stabilizing the solution first. We cannot achieve benefit of an unstable platform. Um, so it's fundamentally important that we're able to track this journey and understand which road we're on. So, so I did want to just explain that, that, that the EOP lifecycle, before we can actually understand what the executive's role is in ensuring that we stay on the high road and avoid the low road, and that, um, and most importantly, that we avoid or we spend as little time as possible in that value of despair. Great. So, so first point, we have to take a view of, of a digital transformation or ELP project from business case to business benefit. Too often, we, these projects default to a technology project, which is all about the implementation. Um, and that's not particularly helpful. It's just the platform that we're putting in place. So let's then start to, to unpack these, these, these five um, points of failure. And I do... I do, um, at the risk of being slightly provocative, I do hold the executive to account um, for ensuring that we don't um, get caught up in these in these pitfalls. Um, let, let's 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 start with the first one: misaligned expectations. Too often that's the case. Too often we start off on this journey, and we do not have a common understanding and common alignment amongst all key stakeholders. We're trying to achieve interpretations and expectation between and the key business owners who will who will be responsible for leveraging and and utilizing the system um, we often have technology approach from the IT function um, and a, and an expectation of very often immediate benefits post collage not even having to go through this period of stabilization and improved user adoption uh, support before we get to before we get some indication that those benefits are starting to to, to occur, um, so so if one looks at the different stakeholder groups, even beyond the executive, I think one first needs to ensure that the executive understand why we're doing this. And in my view, there's no good reason to do an ERP or digital transformation project without improving business performance, without contributing to improve business performance, whether that's bringing about new business capabilities or operational excellence or cost efficiencies, regulatory compliance, uh, real-time visibility of information, whatever the case may be, we do, we do need to ensure that as a, as a unit, that executive understands where we're going with this um, and, and how, we will, how we will measure success. So what constitutes success? What are the, what are the key criteria? And I, my colleague Dom spoke a little bit about that in the, in the previous session. But what are those key metrics that will inform success? And, and probably equally important, what are the key metrics that will inform failure? How do we know when we're on that low road? How do we know that when, when we're starting to take a dip um, on that low road? What are, how will we track those metrics? But when you have differing expectations, that kind of permeates throughout the organization because it's often the corridor of talk that informs what the rest of the organization believes about this project and the consistency of the message that's being communicated as to what is that pot of gold? What are we trying to achieve over here? And, and of course, then you throw the SI into the mix, the systems integrator, the solution provider, um, perhaps some other third party, third party integration or vendors or other institutions that you, ecosystem partners you may do business with. And you have a very diverse group of stakeholders who want something different out of this project. Of course, there's a high dependency on the SI, depending on how one structures the delivery model. Um, and if that contract is set up 
all around go live, all around implementation with little or no accountability for driving out improved business performance, then you already have a, a very different expectation and agenda from a key, a critical party on the in terms of the broader stakeholder group. So the the, the executive really has to be the the glue that holds those expectations together that ensures that there's a, a well-defined and consistent message throughout as to what it is we're, we're after. And, and of course, that that doesn't just um, that's not just relevant at the start of the of, of the ERP life cycle. When we, as an example, get into the design phase um, or understanding what the what the current pain points are and how we will address that in the 2B design or what new capabilities will be launched in order to drive improved revenue, we need to continue to reinforce those messages because with 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 the best will in the world, the project is going to default back to a technology project because that is frankly just the industry that we operate in, and that is our SI contracts or scope. They they are not they do not define the expected business benefits. They define the technologies to be deployed, and everything and and all reports, um, and the narrative on the project is all, is from a technology perspective rather than from an improved business benefit perspective. So let me just perhaps pause there after point one. Uh, Carla, and perhaps uh, if there are, a few, I, I, I can't see the questions at this point, but perhaps there are a few questions yes. that we need to respond to. Yes. Um, so just a reminder, you can pop your questions in any um, chat that you are actually joining in via the comments. So we have a great question here um, from one of our, our LinkedIn viewers that's how much time and effort do you invest in getting buy-in from senior management and engagement? in an organization? And when do you maybe realize that that's not going to happen? Uh, so maybe not an executive piece, but understanding how you get that executive alignment and buy-in. Yes, I, I think it's a great question, especially the, the second part of the question as to at what point does one start to understand that that's not, not going to happen? And then, of course, what does one do, um, depending on which role you're in, in, in terms of the broader program structure? Um, but let me let me let me go to the first question first. I, I think if there, there needs to be some type of organizational readiness now, now whether you independent party doing such an assessment, call it a health check if you want, as to whether the organization as a whole is ready to to proceed on this journey, or that's you know whether that's done by by the executive themselves internally or the chair of the steering committee or the CEO, whatever the case may be, I do think it needs to be a formal assessment. It perhaps doesn't have to be a, a, you know, a, a real deep dive and, and take too much time and effort, but at least the question has to be asked. One has to test that with the relevant executive stakeholders as to whether we are aligned as to what we're wanting to achieve. And certainly from my perspective, Carla, I, I think uh, what we call an executive boot camp, there's... I cannot think of any ERP project doing, focusing on any aspect of it, where I do, where we do not start with an executive bootcamp. It is so important, irrespective of what the role one is doing as third stage on an engagement of this nature. It is absolutely fundamentally important that we just check where are things at, because if there are very divergent views, or there are people who want this and people who don't want this, sitting on the executive, um, you know, with organisational dynamics, this does it. It, it does touch. It does disrupt that balance, of the dynamic within the organization, um, commonly called company politics, but 
absolutely it does change that dynamic it, and it impacts different executives in different ways, some favorably, some less favorably. Sometimes it's a threat, sometimes it's a, it's a great platform um, to, to move forward on. Um, so, so I think having some type of formal assessment up front, very important. Doesn't have to be a long in-depth process, but at least some type of, uh, of, of, of workshop, facilitated workshop where we, where we test the strength of the alignment and understanding. And then I think, think secondly, you know, what does one do when you realize it's not there? Well, in my view, you know, if, if we cannot get to that point, one has to consider, do we pause the project? Mm -hmm. Do we pause the project and unpack what are the underlying issues that are inhibiting the desired level of, of alignment? Um, because the, the end result is that one is going to go live and you're going to have ring views and there's nothing worse than being at it for two or three years, spending tens of and then getting to a point at the end uh, where the executive have differing views on whether success has been achieved or not and are interpreting it differently. Um, there's nothing worse than that. So I, I think one has to consider, do we pause the project at this time and get the relevant stakeholders in a room and try and thrash this out? Okay, we're showing you a mashup of some of our past digital stratosphere thought leadership and speakers and topics. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Could you whisper in my ear the things you want to feel? Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 131. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on audio and video podcast platforms throughout the world. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're playing you a mashup of past digital stratosphere conferences to give you a flavor of what types of stuff we cover at that conference. Let's continue rolling the mashup here. Just that overall awareness around the reality of that conversation and, and building on that, Clifford, Mark on LinkedIn um, had a comment and a question. So he said, executives have so many demands on their time and attention, but so often ERP failures are due to lack of ex executive engagement. Is it feasible for them to delegate accountability if they don't realistically feel able or qualified to lead an ERP project? You know, so, so, so my response to, because one years this often, one years it from end users when they need to test business process owners, when they need to be involved in design and sign it off from executives, when they need to sit in on steering committees and provide the necessary guidance and oversight. Um, one years often that, you know, we, we're busy, we don't have time for a project. And my response is surely in this day and age of rapid disruption and digital transformation, the one of the primary, if not the primary role of, an, of the executive is to drive change, is to lead change. And one could even say to be a, a disrupting force within the, the executive uh, layer of the organization, 
surely it's not to maintain the status quo and do as we, tomorrow as we've done yesterday. I mean, that, that's a path to failure, surely. It's a path to losing market share. One has to be able to continuously innovate and drive change. And, and that's what digital transformation is. It's, it's, you know, we get caught up on the word digital, but it's about transformation. And as depicted on that high road and low road, um, you know, that transformation is disruptive and it needs the executive guidance, but it hopefully takes you to a better place where you are able to continue staying relevant in the market, able to launch new products and services, deploy them in new ways, connect with new customers in different ways, et cetera, et cetera. So to cut a long story short, I think it's a primary responsibility of an executive to guide and drive such change rather than to adopt a view that this is in addition to my day job. What's a reasonable negotiation? What can you ask for? What what is unreasonable to ask for? What are they never going to give to you? Um, you know, because you know, again, the process is really a collaborative process where you come out with an agreement um, that really you know sets forth exactly what's going to happen, so that when something goes off the rails, you can sit back in your chair at your desk, pull out your contract, and say, "No SAP, no Oracle. You know, here's exactly what you agreed to do." And this is exactly the process by which you're going to remedy that situation. That is ultimately the goal. Okay. So, you know, how do you get there and what are you up against? Well, you're up against a variety of, of, of different issues. Um, let me get to the right slide here. I think without a doubt, you know, your ERP implementation is going to take longer than expected. I think, you know, most of them do. Um, it's going to cost more than you think it does. It is going to. Uh, it's going to exceed your budget. Um, and unfortunately, I think most customers, most clients of mine, don't realize all the business benefits that they thought they were going to realize when they you know, were sold the software, certainly, um, and during that implementation process. And I think you, you just have to understand also you know, the scope and scale of the operational disruption that is going to take place. Um, you know, in the goal here today is, you know, how do you use the contract document, the contract negotiation process to give yourself what I would call a dog in the fight to minimize, you know, all of these issues from taking place. So I, I, I don't think you can, you can preclude them from taking place, but I think you can minimize the impact that they're going to have on your business and, you know, utilize that contract in a way so that you know, when these things do happen, you've got a remedy, a resolution, a path forward to mitigate the impact um, of some of these uh, you know, unexpected issues coming up. Now, I wanna talk kind of as a springboard um, about a, a client of mine, LK Plastics, and I can't get into too many specifics of this particular case because it's all you know, confidential. There was a settlement agreement reached with Oracle late last year um, so I can't talk about the specifics, but I want to use it um, to talk about some of the generalities. I'll talk about some of the specifics. Um, I'm not going to go into excessive detail, like I said, but what I will share with you is publicly available. You can, you know, go onto the court's website and you know pull the complaint and take a look at it. You know, if anybody wants to to, to have access to that document, they don't have access to to Pacer and the like. I can certainly send that to you via email if you're really interested. Um, you know. So this situation, you know, LK went on a, a search for a new software provider. I can't remember the, the, the provider they were, their legacy ERP system. I think actually it was Texas, um, which is a, maybe a second tier or third tier software provider. Um, they were unhappy with the direction it was going. It was going to be sunsetted. 
So they went on a search for Oracle or a new replacement rather. They settle on NetSuite, which is owned by Oracle. And they were very much sold, you know, all the sizzle um, associated with, um, you know, the software, all the functionality that it can do, you know, all the amazing things that this cloud product was capable of. Um, you know, they, they, they embark on an implementation project that has um, a number of, you know, issues that come up pretty much similar to the issues that we just talked about. Um, but, you know, lo and behold, they, they, they get to a point where they're starting to test the system and the system can't process any transaction within the software for the, for the customer, for the client um, at, at a rate faster than something like 15 seconds. It, it, it was shocking. So, you know, while 15 seconds for a processing time may not seem significant, I mean, if you, if you think about it, you know, if you hit send on an email, right, and it takes 15 seconds to send or you know, you hit save on a Word document. You know, these are the, the, the applications I use on a regular basis, right? Um, as a lawyer, uh, you, you know, it takes 15 seconds to send. That's going to be problematic. And in a in a scenario where you're you're processing, you know, hundreds of thousands potentially of orders or, or even hundreds of orders every day, it, it, and you multiply that by 15 seconds, I mean, that can have a very you know significant. Uh, impact on your business, right? I mean, it, it could it could potentially take you down. So you've got to remedy that situation. So here in this situation, certainly, you know, the client goes to Oracle and says, hey, well, you know, you've got to fix this. And Oracle says, okay, well, you know, we, we'll, we'll try to get that processing time down. They go through some iterations. It gets, it gets to a point where, you know, they do bring down the processing time, but it's never something that, you know, in our client's view was, was suitable for modern commercial needs, right? So, you know, what does that what does that mean? I mean, I think you know here, I think when you go into these implementation scenarios, and the reason why they can fail is you can have an there's going to be a resistance to change. And I, you know, I was listening to the last present presenters, and they talked about change management. Um, and I, I think that kind of carries over to this as well, but it's a little bit different, right? I mean, this is a fundamental aspect of the software that is not working the way it was represented to work. Or it doesn't work in a way that actually supports your business in a way that allows you to continue to con conduct business in an efficient manner. That's a problem. That's not you being unwilling to change, you know, I, I would argue, right? But I think certainly your ERP project can fail to the extent that you're not willing to adopt the way that that software the business flows in that software, right? There's going to be there's going to have to be some kind of modification or change in the way that you do business to adapt to that software product. Now, I will sometimes have clients, and in this case, it was not this is not that scenario <clears throat> where they're so unwilling to change. What they want is to make massive modifications and customizations to the underlying software so that it essentially functions the same way as their legacy system, which to me doesn't make any sense. Okay. I, first of all, you know, it's, it, that is going to cause you know, massive disruption in the implementation. You're not going to get the business benefits associated with the modern technology that, that you're supposedly implementing for those benefits. You're trying to replicate, you know, in most cases, a 10-year-old system. Uh, you know, that is a recipe for, for disaster. And you know, I think from a contracting perspective, you've got to have an understanding of what the scope is, what your business objectives are. And we'll, we'll talk about all these things in more detail in a little bit, but you've got to have a really clear laser focus on, you know, what you are getting out of the software, what you want it to address, 
and really why you're implementing ERP software in the first place, you know. Um, you know, choosing the right integrator, certainly it's important, but, you know, it's not, it, it may, it may not make or break the situation. I think in this particular case where you have, <coughs> excuse me, a piece of functionality that just doesn't work in the way that it was either represented or the way that you expected it to work, you know, is, is a, is a different vendor, um, or excuse me, a different, you know, integrator, implementer, consultant, is, are, are they going to be able to modify that in a way that addresses your particular scenario? Probably not. You know, I think choosing the wrong integrator is going to have a substantive impact on your project in a, in a real negative way. Um, but, you know, choosing the right integrator is going to kind of keep you at, at status quo, I would say. Um, I'm sure somebody's talked about this because it's talked about in, in, in seminars like this all the time, but executive misalignment can certainly kill your project, right? So, you know, I think in LK's situation, they caught it early. Um, there was executive involvement from, you know, dur during that implementation. I won't say from the beginning necessarily. I think maybe there could have been more um, you know, executive alignment, executive buy-in and executive understanding from the very start of that project, um, but certainly they were involved enough to realize what was going on and make the informed decision as to whether they're going to continue down that path of modification and customization to get that software to a place where they wanted it to be, or they were simply going to walk away. Um, you know, does the software work? You know, I, I think in most of these situations, <coughs> the software works, okay? You're, you're implementing Oracle, you're implementing SAP. You know, these are products that have been you know, put on the ground in virtually every continent, you know, hundreds of, if not thousands of times over and over, you know, for a variety of different types of customers. So, you know, does, does the software work? I, I, I think, you know, the answer to that question certainly is, is yes. Now, it may not work for you, and it may not work in the way that it was represented to work for you. It may not address all of your business requirements. And that, you know, that's a different scenario, right? But in my experience, having negotiated thousands of these types of contracts and litigating, you know, dozens, more than dozens uh, of, of substantive ERP failures in, in courts across the country and before arbitration panels all over the country, you know, if it's going to fail, it usually isn't a technology issue, okay? Um, and I think that's good news from a contracting perspective because, you know, you, you, can't, you can't contract around a piece of failed technology, but what you can contract around and what ca causes these implementation failures more often than not, it's a people issue, right? It's a process issue. So if you can utilize your contract to mitigate the, the likelihood that, you know, people are disconnecting, um, are not living up to the obligations that they have told you they're going to live up to. You're going to uh, put yourself in a good position to avoid certainly, you know, an implementation failure. Um, and again, let you know, I, I want to go through kind of what a typical implementation dispute looks like, um, because I think with that context behind you, then we can start talking about the contract in a little bit more detail. Okay, so, you know, all, all of these failures are different, right? There's, there's a different piece of functionality 
um, that doesn't work. There's a different type of representation. There was an aggressive salesperson, you know, whatever it is, you know, they, th th there's going to be something factually different associated with your implementation failure or your implementation than there is somebody else's. But in, in general, you know, all of the ERP implementation disputes, lawsuits, uh, problems have kind of a similar trajectory and they usually have a handful of similar allegations that are made by the customer. Okay. And the first one is, look, you know, you're, the, the people you gave to us lacked experience. They didn't have the skill set to, to uh, implement the software. They didn't understand our industry. They, um, you know, were, were uh, never on site. They were remote. They were in, you know, Pakistan or the Philippines or you know, whatever it is. What we were promised as a customer was the A team, right? But what you actually gave us was not even the B team. It was the D team. You used our implementation as a training ground to get your inexperienced consultants you know, up and running. So, so you know, to, to get them to the point where they could be utilized on other more important projects, perhaps. Now, and we see this a lot. Um, in, you know, the challenge with these disputes is when you point the finger right at the vendor, you know, there, there's, you know, three or four fingers pointing right back at you, right? So the, the, the typical vendor response to this is something like, well, you know, the customer's project manager um, and decision makers, they weren't available when we needed them, okay? Um, there was high employee turnover during the project. So, you know, it's not that we didn't have a lack of experience. It's that you didn't have a consistent workforce dedicated to the project. Um, you didn't have an understanding or your team didn't have an understanding of how the business was actually run. And, you know, moreover, your team didn't have the power to make decisions when we needed them to make decisions. Um, they weren't fully invested in the conversion, right? Those are, that, that's kind of the way it's going to go, right? We will put something like this in, in a complaint asserting that, hey, you guys didn't have the experience. The response back will be something like that. Okay, we're showing you a mashup of some of our past digital stratosphere thought leadership and speakers and topics. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 131. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on audio and video podcast platforms throughout the world. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're playing you a mashup of past digital stratosphere conferences to give you a flavor of what types of stuff we cover at that conference. Let's continue rolling the mashup here. 
one of the big ones is, you know, look, your salespeople misrepresented the software's ability, its functionality. They misrepresented how the software was going to address our needs. Okay. Um, this is almost a, this is almost always a part of any ERP implementation dispute, um, and it's 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 a hard argument to make, but it's something that you've got to make from a strategic standpoint because, it, and this goes back to the contract. You know, the contract that you're going to get from a vendor is typically a form contract um, that they will dissuade you from trying to negotiate in any substantive way. That will say everybody signs it. It's not our, it, our business model is not to negotiate this particular issue. You know, so the contract is, is worse off than you think it is. If you're going to try to make these allegations later down the road, you know, God forbid your, your, your implementation fails and you've got to hire an attorney. Um, and so, so the key here is you've got to get outside the four corners of that contract and making an allegation of fraud or negligent misrepresentation is is one of the best ways to do it because all of those provisions in the contract that are not favorable to you they all fall to the wayside okay so this narrow limitation of liability the narrow remedies that you're afforded they all go away and just by simply putting this type of an allegation in a complaint in a demand for arbitration whatever it is in a letter you know a demand letter you know it, it's going to make you know their head snap back and they're going to understand that you know what you're doing you're serious um, but it's challenging, it's challenging for a variety of reasons to win on something like this, or to make this argument successfully. And primarily they've got a lot of good answers for this. Okay. They're going to say, look, the software met the agreed upon acceptance type uh, criteria. The software performed as warranted in the contract because it substantially complied with the documentation. Um, and we'll talk about warranties a little bit later, you know, and that's an interesting one when they say it complied with the documentation. I'll bet you, you know, dollars to donuts, so to speak, that that you're not going to, you will have never seen that documentation, right? Or that the documentation doesn't talk about, you know, the, the particular disconnect you're experiencing with the, the, the software. Um, you know, in addition to saying that it, it complies with the documentation, they will say that, you know, the software and the functionality were demonstrated to you. You had the ability to look at it. And then they'll say, you know, that, you know, the, the, this, the software sales process was open, it was transparent, and your expectations are just, are just unreasonable. Another typical allegation um, when these things go sideways is, look, you know, we flip the switch and we can't use the software. Um, you know, there's excessive uh, you know, processing times, we can't ship products, we have to have, you know, massive overtime for employees so that they can actually process transactions within the system. Um, you know, we can't comply with state or federal regulations, we're losing customers, whatever it is. I mean, you know, it's a parade of horribles, right? I mean, we, we represented a few years ago with a very large uh, tier one software implementation uh, a, a pet supplier, a supplier of pet products. Okay. Um, a, a very large one that you're all probably familiar with, you know, they flipped the switch and all of a sudden they couldn't process uh, their credit cards. They couldn't um, uh, contact their customers. They had to get a call center to deal with all of the complaints. And ultimately what ended up happening is because there were overcharges on, on uh, credit cards, you know, people actually called the police, and you know the, the police actually showed up uh, at their corporate headquarters asking them what was going on. So I mean, you know, 
this stuff is 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 substantive and it's real. Um, you know, and again, I think the standard vendor response is the software works, right? Um, you as a customer just failed to re-engineer your business processes, you know, or you didn't implement organizational change so that you could actually use the system. You wanted this system to function the same way that your legacy system functioned. So that's the typical kind of back and forth that you would get with this one. Yeah, so how do you how do you avoid these things? Okay. Um, and then you know more importantly, let's talk about how you how you kind of can put these these issues or address these issues within the contract itself, right? Um, you've got to define clear project goals, right? Um, what do you want uh, out of the ERP system that you're implementing? Why do you want to implement the ERP system? You've got to identify and you've got to quantify you know, opportunities for improvement in your current business state. I think you know, what we will see sometimes is companies that just want to implement the latest and greatest technology. They've been on their legacy system for 10 years. They don't have an understanding of you know, why they want to implement the software. It's just a technology thing. And if you're implementing an ERP system to get the latest and greatest technology, you're really going to do yourself a disservice and you're, you're, you're setting yourself back. And I think you know you then you increase the likelihood of of a failure because you don't have a, a clearly defined goal. You're just you're just chasing something. You have nothing that's measurable. You know, you've got to define your business requirements certainly, right? And ideally, those business requirements, to the extent you can, are going to be incorporated into the contract. Um, I think it's critical that you know before you even evaluate, and certainly before you select. A software system you have to have you have to have an understanding of what your business requirements are um you need to focus on you know your current business processes and you know clearly you've got to identify how those things can be improved um you've got to involve key employees right in the selection process the implementation process and i think one of the most important things is you've got to pri prioritize your deal breakers and you can't make assumptions you know in this lk scenario you know they assumed that you know any modern software was going to be fit for modern commercial needs and part and parcel to that would be that it would be fast right i mean modern software is fast that, that should be a given right but it's not and you you can't you you, you can't just make that type of assumption that the software is going to be fast enough for your business you've got to understand okay the business today we process transactions in two seconds and any kind of replacement ERP software system needs to do that too because if it doesn't you know we're going to have a we're going to have an issue which is what happened in the lawsuit that we talked about earlier <coughs> but i can't really fault them i mean i think that's something that's such a bare basic requirement that you would assume that the software could be you know could would, would perform transactions in a reasonably fast manner it's almost like you know you go buy a car you don't have to make an assumption that it's going to come with wheels, right? Um, you don't assume, uh, or you make an assumption that it's going to come with wheels. You don't, you don't, you know, you assume that it's going to have an engine, right? But, but in this context, I think you have to be very careful and you have to make sure that you have, you know, prioritized your deal breakers and you have written them down. Um, and ideally they should be incorporated into the contract. Anything that is important to you needs to be incorporated into the contract as a representation or a warranty, it needs to be included as an exhibit to the contract that the software is going to do X. Um, because without that, you know, you're, you're, you're 
putting yourself at a massive disadvantage and your attorney as well. I mean, if we have to litigate on the basis that something was important and the other side, which is what happened in this Oracle case, it can can just repeatedly say, well, you didn't write it down. You, you know, you had an opportunity multiple times with before you bought the software and then during the implementation process to tell us that that was a critical requirement, but you never did. You know, that's that's a hard argument to win, right? The response to that is, well, we just assumed that it was going to be fast enough for a business. So, um, you know, that's a significant issue that needs to be addressed. Prioritize your deal breakers and put them in the contract. Some of the keys then to digital transformation success, then, you know, we've talked about where some of the challenges are, but now if we, we sort of um, back up a little bit and say, well, how do we avoid these problems? I mean, no one, I don't think anyone on this call or in this event will want their transformation to look like what, you know, I've just described here with the, uh, the challenges and some of the operational disruptions. So what do we do? How can we, you know, can, can we avoid those problems is a big question. And it, the answer is a resounding yes, you, they can be avoided and they are fairly predictable. You know, the, the things that organizations do to create a lot of the problems that I just described are, are pretty predictable. On the flip side of the equation, the things that make projects successful are fairly predictable. It's not, it's not a surprise. In other words, it's usually um, when you see a failed project or a successful project, it's usually, you know, if you look at what they did, and what the organizations focused on and how they prioritized and the leadership behind it, um, the decisions behind it, how they manage their system integrator, all that stuff. It's pretty, it's a pretty common pattern in both buckets, the failures and the successes, you know, each one has different patterns, but they're very consistent within that bucket. So one of the, one of the first things to remember is that the failure can be avoided. So it, it's not just uh, that these failures happen. It's not just bad luck. Um, a lot of times the organizations themselves feel as though they're sort of deer in the headlights. You know, they don't know what just happened to them. They don't know what's happening to them as it's happening. Uh, but it's not luck. There's something behind it that's very consistent and predictable and why those failures are, why those projects are failing. And so there are technology agnostic best practices that help avoid these sorts of failures. Um, one of the biggest things that, that I constantly repeat, if you watch my videos, read my blogs or podcasts or anything like that, I constantly repeat that, you know, bias in the industry is one of the biggest problems with transformations. And the bias comes from vendors, it comes from consultants that are focused on one technology, it comes from the blind spots in the industry, it comes from the, the monetary and economic incentives to sell more software. There's a ton of bias in this industry, which is why I started third stage, because I, I didn't like that there was so much bias. And I was part of that bias when I you know, started my career. So I wanted to create a company that was sort of the opposite of that, that, that was unbiased, that didn't represent vendor best interest, but represent a client best interest. And the reason that's so important is you do need to focus more on yourself and your business, your strategy and goals and objectives, and less on the software vendors and what they think you should do. Because again, their, their job is to sell you software and to be agnostic and independent is one of the best ways you can, you can mitigate some of those, some of those risks. And then the last thing on the slide I'll mention is, is a final point is that you don't want to settle for mediocre results. I mean, a lot of organizations are just glad to be in business after they get through a transformation. They're, they're just glad they didn't have a complete unmitigated disaster. Um, that's a pretty low bar to set. And you should really be aiming to not just not fail, but why, why are you going through this project in the first place? You're not doing it to not fail. You're, you should be doing it to transform your business, improve your business, make it more ready for the 2020s and the 2030s, um, you know, make your employees more happy to be there, 
provide better service to your customers, all that stuff. So that should be where your mind should be, not on let's not screw this up. Because if your focus is on not screwing it up, you're probably going to fall a bit short of that goal. Whatever goal you set, you'll probably fall a bit short because these projects are hard. So you don't want to set the bar that low. Um, and if you're focused on not failing, it creates this defensive um, this defensive mindset and this defensive decision-making process that usually ironically leads to more likelihood of failure. So for example, if I'm so focused on not failing or not blowing my budget, I'm probably going to make some bad short-sighted decisions like let's cut change management because that's going to save us a bunch of money. Um, that would be an example of how I might make a decision if I'm just trying not to fail. Although the irony of that is if you really don't want to fail, you should probably invest more in change management. So that sort of decision-making is, is very difficult for organizations. But the key here is that uh, the failure can uh, certainly be avoided. So the next takeaway here in terms of what some of these best practices are for a successful transformation is to start with a clear digital strategy. Make sure you have a clear vision and that you've articulated and translated the vision into what the transformation means and what the project governance behind that transformation is so that you have that clear vision of where you're headed and, and what you want to be when you grow up. One of the biggest challenges we see with organizations is um, it's almost like a, uh, if you think, if you think of a, um, not a bell curve, but think of a graph that maps out the, the morale and excitement and the momentum you have on a project like this. Usually it's pretty, you know, it's pretty moderate. Let's just say when you first start the initial exploration of new technologies, but as you get momentum in that project and the, you know, the executive team and the board approves the budget to go evaluate potential systems and they create that internal alignment and focus on we're going to move forward with the new system replacement or digital transformation. What ends up happening is you create excitement and momentum and people get really excited and then they start to see the technologies and the possibilities that could be within their organization and they get really excited and momentum's high morale high right as you're selecting new software and you're getting ready to start the implementation unfortunately that momentum peaks right there right at the point where you decide on new technology and you get approval to move forward you mobilize a team everyone's excited the minute you start facing headwinds and start stepping in landmines the morale starts to drop the excitement and momentum drops from its from its peak and the reason I bring up this dynamic is it's at that point, at that peak point is where a lot of organizations make bad decisions because they're so blinded by the optimism and the excitement that they don't think about, you know, hey, maybe we should slow things down a bit and make sure we have a clear strategy and plan. And mo we've mobilized our resources. We've defined our business processes and we started to take a look at our data. We've we've uh, we have a we have a clear data migration strategy. We have an organizational assessment and organizational change strategy to address the unique organizational challenges that we're going to face during this transformation. They don't take the time to do all that stuff because they want to jump in and start implementing stuff because they're so excited. And, and then the, the vendors and the system integrators add fuel to that situation by saying, yeah, close the deal today and I'll give you a special deal that is a once in a lifetime deal. And you therefore sign the contracts and all of a sudden you've got a million people, not a million, but you've got an army of consultants and a bunch of software that you're paying for starting on day one. And then it creates this this whole domino effect now, a ripple effect of rushing um, towards an unclear goal and strategy. So you really want to make sure you've got that long-term strategy, the alignment, and that any decision you make along the way should be aligned with those longer-term goals and objectives and the, the blueprint and the parameters that you defined before you've ever started deploying technology. 
Okay, we're showing you a mashup of some of our past digital stratosphere thought leadership and speakers and topics. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Transformation Ground Control, episode number 131. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on audio and video podcast platforms throughout the world. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're playing you a mashup of past digital stratosphere conferences to give you a flavor of what types of stuff we cover at that conference. Let's continue rolling the mashup here. The other um, takeaway, too, the other sort of best practice, uh, as, as I call them here, is to, to let business drive the technology. Don't let the technology drive the business. Now, technology is certainly going to provide you tools and capabilities that you don't have today, for sure. So, of course, the technology is going to bring you things that you you can't do today, or it's very difficult to do today. But at the end of the day, your business and your business needs should drive the technology. It should be all about your strategy, your goals, objectives, what you're trying to do operationally, strategically, what sort of customer experience you're trying to enable, what kind of employee experience you're trying to enable, what kind of business value and ROI you're trying to create as an organization that should all drive the technology deployment. Unfortunately, most organizations flip that and they focus so much on the technology. And then the vendors, of course, are focused on the technology because that's what they do. And so you've got all these people focused on technology, but not the business. And so you, you really have to flip the script on that and focus more on the business. Let the, let the dog wag the tail instead of the tail wagging the dog. And it's important to remember that it's not an IT project, even if your CIO is the executive sponsor, or even if your IT team is heavily involved, which they should be in the project, um, it's not them that's leading. It shouldn't be them that's leading. It should be a business-driven initiative that focuses on business operations, strategy, business value, and the people, et cetera. Um, also, same with business process improvements. I mentioned before that the whole concept of software best practices and pre-configurations is a myth it doesn't they don't exist in terms of effective use um, they do exist and it's a great selling point it's a great marketing message for vendors and you can occasionally use them to your benefit but more often than not it's, it's a misleading uh, myth that it just doesn't add material value to a project so you want to make sure that you do have you know business process improvements defined up front that then you're going to use to uh, technology to help enable um, it's, it's backwards to, it may seem counterintuitive to some, but it is backwards to assume that we're just going to deploy technology and the technology will, will give us the answer for what our process improvements are going to be. If you take that mindset, then what's going to happen is 
again, the path of least resistance, the organization is going to deploy technology the way they've always used technology because that's what they know and that's what they want. That's why you need a clear vision, a clear roadmap, a clear blueprint for what you want in terms of process improvements in the operational model going forward. And then finally, your, your uh, transformation should be closely aligned with measurable strategic goals. And sounds simple enough, but you, it's, a, it's a common trap that organizations fall into that they get so enamored by technology, but they can't necessarily articulate how that technology is going to drive measurable strategic goals and objectives. And if you can't connect the dots, then that's probably a good indicator that maybe you should think about not buying that technology or not deploying that technology. And so you want to make sure that you don't get too caught up again in all the buzzwords and hype around AI and predictive analytics and machine learning. That stuff's great, but it may or may not add value to your business. And so that's really the key is to understand where is this technology going to add value to our business? If it doesn't, Maybe we don't deploy that technology, or maybe we look at a third party bolt on for that part of the business, or maybe we just focus on improving the processes and standardizing some ways we do things and leveraging the technology we already have. That That's okay too. So it's a, it's a matter of really having a clear vision of how the business will drive the technology and not the other way around. And another root cause of a, of a lot of failure points and a lot of mistakes that happen in a project uh, is this concept of unrealistic expectations. So Oftentimes when that, that peak momentum point happens, which I talked about earlier, that peak momentum happens, we have pretty unrealistic expectations at that point. As humans, when we're excited, momentum's high, we see a vision for the future, um, it doesn't seem that difficult. You know, it feels like it, it, we're all ready, right? We're ready to move forward. We found our software, we're about to sign a contract, um, that the vendor's promising us the world. They've told us we can implement this project, say in 18 months, um, yeah, let's go, let's go forward. And so you end up with this mindset that everything's great, everything's perfect. And you get into the project and realize it's not, there's a lot of pitfalls. There's a lot of headwinds. There's a lot of risk, a lot of things that you don't know when the peak, uh, excitement is there. So you want to be sure that you have a, a dose of healthy skepticism to make sure you have realistic expectations because you, you want to understand what the risks are. Um, even at that time of a peak excitement in a project, you still need to be thinking about, well, where are the risks? Okay. Because this is, this is exciting, right? But there are risks out there on the battlefield that we're about to enter. Let's go find where those landmines or risks are rather than assume they're not there because we can't see them. They're there. We just need to find them so we don't step on them. So, and we can do that by the way, in a way that's not demoralizing. Um, in fact, it's, it should be more empowering and more exciting to know that, Hey, I see what's out there and I know what I'm about to do rather than this sort of a, a blind fog that, that we might be walking into. So making sure we've got those realistic expectations is critical. Um, that misalignment oftentimes with the misalignment around expectations often leads to rash and bad decisions. Um, again, if we, if we don't, um, if we have unrealistic expectations, what ends up happening is because we think this implementation is going to take 18 months, which let's just say for hypothetical purposes, it was never going to be 18 months. It's more like 36 months, but I'm being told it's 18 months. I'm creating a, all these parameters, these false parameters around an 18 month project. And I'm going to get at some point into that project and realize, wow, there's no way we're going to do this in 18 months. So therefore I need to cut scope. I need to cut change management from the, the schedule. I can't worry about data migration now. I'm just going to have to, you know, start over with new data, whatever. I'm just giving some examples here. But those sorts of decisions end up being bad decisions that you end up having to make because you had unrealistic expectations. So that's why it's so important to make sure you have those expectations 
aligned and clear and realistic upfront. And you also want to make sure that you understand the risk with time, cost and resources. And as I mentioned, you want to make sure you have some professional skepticism uh, with your vendor. The point of this, um, this thought here is that your implementation process and the time and resources and money invest in your implementation should far exceed the time and money you invest in the software evaluation and selection. A lot of times organizations get caught up in sort of an analysis paralysis cycle. They, they, uh, on one hand, you want to give them kudos because they're being very thorough in their evaluation and they're making sure that they find the right software, which is great. But on the other hand, no technology is perfect. And the more, the more you analyze any product that's out there, any system or any technology that you might want to deploy, you're going to find problems with it, things that don't match exactly what you need. And that's okay. You, you want to know what those are, but you also don't want to get so hung up that you can't make a decision because you can't find that, that unicorn or that rainbow of perfect software that doesn't exist. So it's one way to look at this is you don't want to rush the selection process. You want to be thorough. You want to make sure you find the right technology, but at some point you get a point of diminishing returns. You're, you're overthinking it. You're spending too much time and money on the selection. And the way you have to look at this is resources are limited every time or every hour of time and every dollar of budget you spend on the selection process is one less hour and one less dollar you can spend on the implementation. So the faster you can get to a good decision means that you can spend more time and money on the implementation, which is where the real challenge and where the real um, potential success comes from. So you want to make sure you've got that, that selection uh, done in an objective, effective, fast way. And that's just as an example of a way we help our clients do that is we have a, a database that has 30,000 business requirements against close to a thousand different systems um, in the marketplace. And so we can go and pull up any of those requirements to see which systems best handle those requirements. And it's a good objective way to provide objective data that sort of counterbalances the bias data you're going to get from your vendors and the demos and the RFP process. But it also uh, speeds things up too. You know, it's going to make us help us get to that short list and help us get to a decision faster because we have that tool set supporting us. So that's just one example of how you can be effective, speed things up, and focus more on the implementation. And you you really want to make sure of of consulting firms or project teams that drag out the selection process either because they don't know what they're doing and they don't know enough about the different systems in the market. Um, or it could be that that's, you know, if it's a, a software selection firm, it maybe that's how they make their money. So they want to spend more time and money on it. So um, you, you just be leery of all that. You want to make sure that you've got a, a realistic and aggressive but effective uh, selection process so that you can spend more time on the implementation. And then a, a, a sixth thing here is to know that there are no silver bullets. So you have to be aware of the industry hype and all the best practices and industry pre-configurations and the, the, uh, the hype around the cloud and how easy it is to deploy how cloud technologies. Just be aware that there's a lot of silver bullets out there. There's always going to be, there always has been. Um, that's how vendors sell, right? They, they create hype and they, they perpetuate that hype by not only selling their software, but also hiring industry analysts to put out reports that are telling you the same thing, which is technology is great and these are the silver bullets. You know, some of the common things, you, you, some of the most common areas of hype right now in, in the industry are certainly cloud is one. And it's not to say that people shouldn't be moving to the cloud, but it's, it's to say that if you're moving to the cloud, just know that there it's not a silver bullet. 
it doesn't make your implementation easier. It's just not going to make it easier. You still have to change your processes. You still have to change your people. You still struggle with all the failure points or the risk points that I've already talked about. None of that stuff goes away as a result of cloud. So you just have to be aware the cloud is, is a silver bullet. Another example is agile. You know, a lot of times now, um, I think what the software vendors and system integrators are doing is they're sort of piggybacking on this um, lean startup trend, I guess you call it, and in agile movements within the software development space, they're kind of piggybacking on those trends to, to address a perceived problem in the industry, which is implementations take too long and take too much money. So what they're doing is they're saying, well, let's call it an agile approach. Then we'll be agile in our, in our implementations. Well, that's great. It sounds good, but it, just because you're going faster in the wrong direction, doesn't mean that's the right answer. So you just want to be, be uh, aware of, and again, back to that skepticism, make sure you understand what some of those challenges are. Um, and I, I mentioned, uh, you know, anything that has to do with cookie cutter or fix all strategies you want to be, be leery of whenever a vendor's telling you that this solves all your problems because it, it's not going to solve them all. And the key takeaway here is that last bullet, which is that transformations are hard. So whether you're using an agile approach or deploying cloud technologies or uh, pre-configured industry solutions, okay, maybe there's some benefit to that stuff. But at the end of the day, this is hard work. You've got to roll up your sleeves, change your processes, change your people, figure out how your systems and data are going to tie together. There's a lot of risk associated with a project like this. So none of that stuff goes away. You still have to do all that. So that's the risk of silver bullets is it creates this false expectation that things are going to be easier than they really are. And then the seventh thing is to control the tempo of the project. And I mentioned this earlier, that it's your project. You don't want to be rushed prematurely into implementation just because you're getting a, a once in a lifetime deal on software licenses or software subscriptions, um, which by the way, uh, those once in a lifetime deals typically are honored at any point you're ready to buy software. So don't fall for that. Um, but you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons why organizations rush and it's, it's, it's important to remember that it's, it's always better. It's cheaper and faster to implement right the first time. It's a lot more expensive when you have to redo it or have two or three tries at this, you might as well spend less time and money on the overall project by doing it right the first time. And again, you can look at a, budget on paper and see that it shows a number, but oftentimes that number is not realistic. It's, it's actually going to balloon to say double that. So then that begs the question of, okay, instead of doubling an unrealistic number, what if we take that unrealistic number, make it realistic? Maybe we add 20% or whatever the number is to the time and budget, but that ensures that we have more likelihood of success. So you want to get it right the first time. And you also want to, um, you know, address conflicting priorities. And understand that if you are going through a massive amount of change as an organization and a software vendor is coming in telling you they can implement in six months or 12 months or 18 months or some unrealistic number, you have to understand that, well, maybe we push back and say, well, let's not make it a 12 month project. Let's make it a 24 month project to account for the fact that we have competing priorities. We're going through a lot of changes in organization and maybe we're risk adverse. We just move slowly as an organization that it's not the time you know, it's not the time to decide you're going to be a fast moving, aggressive organization. If you're not doing a big implementation or transformation is not the time to make that decision and then assume that you're just going to be more aggressive or change your culture overnight because you're not going to. And you're also not going to change those competing priorities unless you have clear commitment from your leadership team to stop other initiatives that are conflicting with that. So you just want to be realistic about the landscape, the culture, who you are, and, and let that drive the tempo of your project, not the not the uh, software vendors or, or system integrators. 
So all this, this is all transformation. It all takes time. And then finally, last but not least, in fact, I'd say most importantly, change management. The, the organizations that fail, and, and when I say fail, I'm, I'm referring to projects that clients have helped us or, or hired us to come recover because they failed with themselves or with another consulting firm, or in cases where an attorney hires us, like Marcus Harris, who you'll hear from later today, an attorney like Marcus hires us to be an expert witness in a failed lawsuit or a failed project that has led to lawsuit. What we find in all those cases, every single instance, is that change management wasn't addressed properly. There was a under focus, lack of focus on change management, but yet this people component is the most important. So it is very safe to say, and I'm very skeptical of any sort of universal um, one size fits all sorts of solutions or answers with the exception of the fact of that se second bullet, which is that your project will fail without change management. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a high growth startup type of company, or if you're a mature multi-billion dollar global organization, no matter who you are, you're, the project is going to fail if you don't address change management well. Every organization is full of people that are that are imperfect. Every organization has a culture that is going to be disrupted by this project. Every organization has its own business processes and systems that are going to be disrupted by this project. All that means that you need change management. If without it, you, you're going to fail. And that typically goes well beyond training and communications. Um, that includes things that uh, I've included examples of here, organizational design, defining what job roles and responsibilities are gonna look like going forward, uh, business readiness, the change impact, understanding how different departments and individuals are affected by the changes and then ultimately helping them through those changes, uh, benefits realization, the communications, the uh, executive alignment. Those are all examples, just a few examples of areas where change management uh, can help enable uh, some of these these process improvements or, or help enable a more effective transformation. And, and one of the um, another thing, if you're interested in more about change management, in addition to listening to Teresa's Teresa Richardson's presentation from yesterday about change management, I also encourage you to download our change management guide, um, which you can find on our website. If you just go to um, thirdstage-consulting.com, go to the resource center, you'll find a guide to change management that you can download that has a bunch of, it elaborates a lot more on a, a lot of the stuff on this slide here. So those are a few of the things that, uh, you know, eight things that are critical to any uh, transformation. And it's really the ways to uh, avoid failure and uh, address some of the, the risks that we've talked about. All right, good stuff. That was a, a mashup and a, a sample of some of the past speaking sessions and topics we've covered at Digital Stratospheres in the past. It's a flavor of what you might expect at Digital Stratosphere 2023 coming up in Denver uh, later this year in October of 2023. You can learn more at stratosphere2023.com. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more about uh, what to expect at that conference, and we'll, we'll dive into some follow-up questions as well. Stick around. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. When fears are big, that should be small. Who can tell what magic spells we'll be doing? If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or 
or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 131. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. And Kyler, we just played, before the break, we played this mashup of past digital stratosphere speaking sessions. What are some of your questions, comments, thoughts, takeaways from uh, sort of hearing that uh, that mashup and that crash course and all the different stuff we talk about in that conference? Well, I always say it, it's a huge honor to get the opportunity to moderate these conferences um, because you learn so much from so many different people and their only agenda in talking to you is to help you create strategies that are most effective for independent digital transformations. You really see that from the speaker group. We have former CIOs, former CEOs, um, current CIOs, all kinds of different um stakeholders in which have gone through kind of the trenches of a digital transformation and now have come out to really help organizations to make it successful. So Eric, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you have obviously a huge platform when it comes to talking about this movement of transparency and digital transformation. Why did you feel like a, an in-person event was really kind of the key catalyst to creating a, a key piece of your community? Well, you know, I think uh, one thing that that I've learned since COVID is just how important that in-person activity is. I mean, I think we, we all learned starting in 2020 that yes, you can do more meetings remotely via teams or zoom. Um, but I think what we also found is there are limitations to what you can do via teams or zoom and just really digging in and understanding someone's, someone's personality and their, their knowledge, and even just reading nonverbal sorts of cues you don't get it nearly as well uh, over video as you do in person. And so, um, so anyway, that, that's a big part of it. And also just being able to have those unscripted, unplanned conversations. And that's a big part of digital stratosphere as well as yes, we have the formalized content and the, the formalized speaking events, but so much of what we're trying to do too, is create that community, as you, as you said, Kyler, to create that community, the interaction, the, the peer networking and, and learn, meeting from meeting, and learning from other people as well, not just the speakers, but other attendees. I mean, that's a big part of why I love the event so much because I, I learned so much in those those events, Not and it's not from the speakers. I do learn a lot from the, the other speakers, don't get me wrong, but it's more from the conversations you have in the hallways or the, the questions that people are asking during the sessions. That That's where, to me, the real learning comes from. Absolutely, 100%. Um, we, and we, we often have a client panel where you can actually ask real clients questions because there's so many synergies between you know organizations of various sizes and industries that go through a digital transformation project that so you can really ask granular questions without any fear of biases or anything like that we also do invite our vendor partners um, to just to be clear they don't sponsor the event there's no financial commitment on their part we bring them as a value to our overall community uh, but it's without biases. They talk about their systems, they answer questions, but then they also talk about the industry in general and how it's evolving. Um, I think it's also super cool and big thanks to Eric that um, he was able to open a VIP ticket this year. So if you do purchase the VIP ticket, you will be hanging with Eric um, for three whole days and um, have the opportunity you know, to really um, 
ask him questions firsthand as well as the executive team. I think that's also super cool because you get um, on the uh, third day, you actually get a one-on-one -on -one session with our full executive team, which rarely is that an, an opportunity. So if you are thinking about a project or you do want to ask specific questions, that's an amazing investment to kind of talk to to key thought leaders within the space and understand what that means for your project. So as Eric mentioned, you can head over to stratosphere2023.com to see our sample agenda, our sponsors in there that bring great value as well, that are all technology independent and agnostic, um, as well as our early bird pricing, which is valid through August 15th. Uh, so definitely get in there and take advantage of that. I also, again, I'm just asking for a lot today from our audience. Um, I'm making them work for it. Yeah, you are. But I know if there's specific content that you'd actually like to see at this conference, the, the agenda is still very uh, flexible. So definitely pop that in the comments and we'll work as hard as I can um, to bring that value to you um, as audience members. So definitely excited to host this year and, and um, looking forward to seeing all of you there. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, look forward to seeing uh you there, Kyler, as well as the, the audience here. And uh, if you know anyone that might be interested, be sure to send them over to stratosphere2023.com. And uh, we'll, we'll share more uh, details as this uh, on this podcast. We'll continue to share more details about the conference in the uh, coming weeks and months leading up to that event. So uh, great show today. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Thank you to the audience for the great questions. Thank you, Kyler, for hosting. Uh, thank you for our guests, uh, particularly uh, Shannon and Nicole from System 1A. Thank you for being here today. Um, really enjoyed the conversations we've had here today. So hope you all have a great week. We look forward to seeing you next Wednesday on next week's episode of Transformation Ground Control. Have a great week. In the meantime, we'll see you soon. Take care. And the post for you today is as well as, let me just, as well as, let's just start over because that is just terrible. <laughs> Try it again. Hello, welcome to the episode. Sorry, Cassie has seen worse than this. So that's the good oh, news. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> from myself. <laughs> for sure. so. <laughs> well, I was going to say from, from me in particular. Great. Perfect. Nailed it. Nailed it. Okay.